There is a place where fears and fantasies get weighed with substance alone. Legends and lores are examined in fresh light. Conspiracy theory meets conspiracy fact. Abandon your defenses. Embrace the possibilities. Step beyond the threshold into other realms. And then there was one point where I heard uh, a growl. You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony Kay. With me is Sam Moranto and John Stevenson. On today's show, we're going to finish off a couple of the interviews from last week's Chicago Ghost Conference. Also, we have Andrew Silverman. He's going to finish up talking about the Shroud of Turin. That and much more, so stay tuned. You're listening to Threshold Radio. We're going to start off right away with Sam, live from the Chicago Ghost Conference, talking to TNT Paranormal Investigations, coming up next, right after this quick commercial break. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-Info. You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony K. With me is Sam Ronto and John Stevenson. And right now I'm going to take you to Sam Ronto live at the Chicago Ghost Conference talking to TNT Investigations. TNT Paranormal Investigations, and you're the founder and, and lead investigator. You've been doing this for some time, haven't you? Yeah, I've been doing uh, investigations for about four years. Um, and I was on actually two other teams and decided to start my own. And so we are one of the few women-led teams in the Chicagoland area. And we have mostly female members, but we do have, we're starting to get more of a male membership now over the last six months. We have about 12 or 13 members now on the team. Now, being a, now the difference between the male and, for instance, female uh, investigator, I'll make this, I'll make this statement and tell me if you feel there's any possibility to this. Is there more of a greater sensitivity for the female uh, versus the male? Is the woman more uh, open to uh, the phenomena? Do you say in general, men in general, women in general? I mean, my experience is yes. Yeah, um, and maybe call it mother's intuition, I'm not sure. But yeah, it seems like the women definitely do have more of a connection um, to the spiritual world. Maybe we 
by nature are more open-minded or maybe we allow ourselves to be a little more open-minded i'm not sure maybe in the dna maybe the medical could be. it could I mean, be the, uh, you know someone the other day on tv was talking about how women's hearing is in tune for babies cries yes and they're therefore when their baby cries they wake up and i just wondered maybe is there something like that too where there's a wiring in our dna that makes us maybe a little more maybe not susceptible but maybe more in tune to that kind of thing trusting an, an, another sense that is more and more of a female sense. correct correct that's very good now as far as your own research tell me what is the most dramatic of, of your encounters or uh, investigations yeah in uh, June the team and I had the pleasure of going to Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield Ohio we were uh, went with Ghostland Society, which is also another local group, and three of us, all female, went to a room above the chapel and were just, you know, kind of doing EVP sessions, had a video recorder, and we decided it was time to kind of like call it a night and go out, and as we did, we felt like this, I, I'm not going to call it demonic, because I don't believe that's what it was, but it was a negative presence for sure, someone that was very angry and did not want us there. And it almost felt like they were pushing us down the stairs, if you will, like, like a negative presence behind you. And um, we actually captured um, some video of it coming around the corner af as we were leaving the area. And it was like a black shadow. So it was. It took a little while to shake that feeling. I've never felt something so negative around me. Imagine somebody, like the most angry person you've ever been around. That's kind of what it felt like. And it, it wasn't real pleasant. The most rewarding aspect of this to you would be? Helping our clients. About 90% of what we do is client-based, so clients contact us to help them find answers to what's going on. And another 10% are cases we take on for fun. And it's seeing those people when we give them answers, whether the answers are something as simple as that door locks on its own because we were able to replicate it over and over again so it's not paranormal or maybe we did capture a voice that we can't explain and and seeing them having peace of mind is, is what's most fulfilling for me and again you deal with uh, residential have you dealt with any commercial scenarios we actually have done a few businesses um, one was a bar here in the Chicagoland area and then one was just uh, another business. But majority have been people's homes, but we have done some businesses. Now, what would you? What would be your favorite haunt in as far as the familiar places uh, um, that we could mention? Yeah, we're, we're getting ready to go to Milton, so my, it might change for me in two weeks. But right now, Waverly Hills Sanatorium is probably my favorite place to go. I've been there three times and had experiences there every single time so I definitely like that place the best. It seems to be that seems to be the most consistent place. Uh, Bachelors Grove locally of course uh, but those two Waverly Hills right. number one hands down. Um, now you're tell us about this next venture you're going on. Well um, on October 15th we are going to be the um, host investigation team at Milton School in Alton Illinois and what we will be doing is taking up to 20 people along with us on a ghost hunt and we'll have full run of the school we're going to be setting up equipment allowing people um, to use some of that equipment and kind of get their own experiences we're hoping to capture some EVPs and video while we're there um, but it's it's open to the public it's fifty dollars to go along with us um, majority of the proceeds goes back to the building to help them with their refurbishment efforts great as I had mentioned before Alton to me was one of the most haunted locations 
I've ever been at. And believe me, that wasn't the reason I was going there. Right, right. So uh, I hope you have some experiences, too. And do go to that parking lot. Yeah, I've the been there. Uh, I've been yeah. to the where the old prison was. Yes. I've actually got to investigate McPike Mansion, so I love Alton. That's a cool place to go. And the old hotel. I don't know if it's still there Is anymore. it the Mineral Springs? Yeah. I, yeah. Is that it? It was, well... It, yeah, very haunting. Right. And uh, it's it's a great place, and uh, I don't know if they have the casino down there, and that could be haunting too. Yeah, depending I think on they how do. Your luck is. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to wish you good luck and well, keep thank going you. with this, and hopefully be talking to you soon, my friend. All right, you thanks for having care. me on the show. Sure thing. All right, bye. Okay, Sam Ronzo talking to TNT Investigations live from the Chicago Ghost Conference. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. of October and Halloween fast approaching, we want you, the listener, to share your creepy stories with us. Call us, email us, text us, your personal story, your local legends and folklore. Every week in October, we'll read your story on air. You can even read it yourself if you're not afraid. Call or text us at 708-966-9UFO, 708-966-9836. Or email John directly at ghost1 at bachelors-grove.com. Thank you, and we look forward to your stories. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Welcome back to Thresholds into Other Realms, and with us now is Nancy Reskin. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, fantastic. I haven't seen you in a while. You and Jeff. 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 He's around. He went to uh, start the video camera. I haven't seen him in about a half hour. (laughs) I know. Every time he goes out to have a cigarette, right? Oops, oops. I wasn't supposed to say that. (laughs) And of course, many folks know him from one foot out of the grave. Yes. Which is a television show, and how can they watch this, by the way? We are on every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock Central, on yes. the Paranormal TV Network. Oh. And our channel is Channel One Foot Out, which is short for One Foot Out of the Grave, of course. And, yeah, every Wednesday. And, of course, don't forget to visit our folks. They'll be up at uh, the uh, conference in... Um, Chicago? In This one? Or no, the, the next one up in... Um, uh, uh, Burlington? Burlington, yes. They're Mary. trying. 
Are yes. you going to get up there? Yes, because she wanted us for the week now, and we can't do the whole week. Oh. So we're trying for the weekend. Yes, that's going to yeah. be a nice conference up there. Yeah. Mary Sutherland um, mm-hmm. does a very fine job. Right. And uh, I don't know if she, is she having my good old friend Stanton Friedman up there. As and, uh, far as I know, yeah. Kathy Martin, very good friends yep. of ours. In fact, they're Illinois MUFON members. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, we have uh, another good friend of ours, Don. Yes. Yeah, he'll be up there, Don Schmidt. So there's going to be a lot of people up there, yeah. and yourself going to be up there yeah, for at least hoping, a few days. Yeah, we're hoping that we'll be able to do it for just a couple of days, maybe the weekend. But we have to see because our schedules all of a sudden got real crazy with work. So it makes it a little difficult. Now, how are cases coming along? You having a lot of cases? Um, we haven't done too many private investigations. Yes. We've done a couple events. Um, but Jeff has been doing some um, remote helping of local residents all over. He's done Florida and a couple other places. Oh, really? So, yeah, he's kind of doing it remotely and helping out people, and it's been a real good experience. It's been a learning experience for me because I'm able to understand and grasp a little bit more of exactly what his gifts are. Now, how was it you got into this? Was it uh, Jeff's lead, or was it your lead, or both of you jumping in simultaneously? Or? Um, it, you know, it kind of started out quite by accident. We had gone to a bed and breakfast in Wisconsin and met up with Chris Moon, who was doing the Telephone to the Dead, and thought that it was a little strange and interesting. And um, Jeff got in contact with a couple of people on the East Coast and turned them on to the Ghost Box. And that's how we started, with the Spirit Box. And then trying to understand ourselves, because we both had experiences since we were little kids. And moving from there, so it's been quite a run. We started out on radio about four or five years ago, and then we were on radio for a while, and then jumped from radio to TV. It's been a great ride. We've been able to meet some wonderful, wonderful people. You have some four, yes, it's been, (laughs) you know, that's what I love about this. You run Mm -hmm. to some of the most wonderful people, and you have a good time. Creative yes. people, very Definitely. talented and very, very ambitious, and I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, you also have some four-legged talent in your uh, show, yes. and uh, who are those four-legged talents? <laughs> are you talking about the dogs? Yes. <laughs> yeah, the dogs, Lucy and Godfrey. They, okay. yeah, they pop in every now and then, and um, our son will pop in every now and then when he's coming home from work, and yeah, his girlfriend or the other son, and. The whole concept of our show is to be sitting around the table having a cup of coffee. That's how we started out. And it gives you that feeling of being at home. And I like that. I like I like what we do, but I like to know, I, I mean, we like to know more so what everybody else is doing. We know what we do ourselves. And, and it's been the best learning experience I can ever imagine. Because if we weren't doing this on the radio or on television, I would not be open to a lot of things. I mean... To me, honestly, five years ago, MUFON would have been like, oh my God, what are these people, nuts? But the more I meet people and the more I'm able to understand exactly how everything works and what they've seen and what they've experienced, it's so opened my eyes up to a whole new world. I mean, you say we've met some creative people. We've met some people who, you know, a couple years ago, I would have called them nutcases. I mean... (laughs) They're way out there, but 
you know, it's just another opinion and another point of view, and it's been really a great ride. I've really enjoyed everything. Well, here's the other half of the creative and uh, yeah. talent of the show. <laughs> the back half. Yes. <laughs> Jeff, how are you doing? Here, I'm doing chair. good. How are you doing today, Sam? Pretty good here. Uh, we were just trying to get some insight on how this all came about, your uh, experiences and jumping into this field and the show and uh, also talking about the four-legged talent in your show. The what? The kids. The kids? Uh... <laughs> well, I can tell you a great story about the kids. Okay. Not too long ago, my son sent me a text message, and um, the caption was Gladiator. And I'm looking at the picture as it's coming across, and it was my shoe. <laughs> the shoe is called Gladiator. It's a Gladiator sandal, and he spelled Glad he ate her. Needless to say, I said to Jeff, this is what happens when we leave the dogs home alone. He <laughs> ate my shoe. Oh, my Literally, gosh. the whole toe part of the sandal's gone. Oh, my. Well, <laughs> yeah. remember I was saying, I, do you have a Tasmanian devil there? When That's I, Lucille. Lucille. That's Lucy. <laughs> Lucy has a temper. Oh, God, yeah. No, she's a talker. She's an it's Italian. Oh, there we go. <laughs> she can't talk with her hands. Yeah. If you, yes. if you can't talk with your hands, and yeah. folks, if you see me now, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. You really have an issue. Yeah, you do. The problem is when they, I don't mind them talking with their hands, except they do it while they're driving and on a cell phone, okay? You know? That He's makes driving. it tough. driving. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a lot of events going on in the course of the year for your group, and, and that's pretty much open to the public, too, isn't it, to yes. attend? Yeah. Uh, when's your next uh, uh, doings? Well, like we were talking about, we were hoping to do Burlington. We're still not sure if we're going to be do able it again, to do it yeah. again. Um, and um, we are actually trying to do an event here. Oh, yeah, really? Here at the Portage Theater. Yeah. yeah. Good. Find a place out for a night. Mm-hmm. And uh, do do an event here. Yeah, what he does is he'll he'll show a movie, a movie of your choice. Oh wow! And then you can do an event. So we're trying to get something. Right. We tried that a couple years ago. But well, you're gonna have to keep me informed, and if I could get enough puffers yeah. to handle my got, my oh, yeah. asthma is really I kicking my butt. I have a choice between two movies. Mm -hmm. One is uh, Paranormal Calamity, which is a takeover of Paranormal Activity that my friend worked on, which is hysterical. Or I want to go nostalgic and go Nosferatu. Oh, there you go. The original vampire movie. Yeah, but I'm going in the opposite direction with something extremely disgusting called I Spit on Your Grave. No. <laughs> oh. Now, it's for some reason, movie. I do remember that one. <laughs> um, a lady revenge movie. <laughs> yes. If, if John from Horribles was here, he'd probably throw 20 more other suggestions <laughs> at a minimum for you. And he is in here today. Do you know why or no, whatever? No. I, I'm so surprised. Oh, no. But, right. John, I'll be looking for you. I mean, where, where, where else are you going to go if we do, to do it? And, uh, the owner will let, will let us buy it out for a night on a Friday night or Saturday night. Yes. And, you know, come to a paranormal event and then get a movie. Yes, that's a great idea. It is. Yeah. But yes. throw in for the asthmatics, throw in a puffer. I oh, guarantee okay. you. Okay. It's the only problem with an uh, an old place. Uh, the foyer's fine. We have air coming in, yeah. but the minute you go inside oh, there, yeah, right in the uh, it's oh, like uh, we'll honey. Give you your own seat because I don't know if those have been cleaned in the last fifty. Oh, years. they probably have not. Yeah. That's part of the ambiance, yes. you know. That's yeah, it's one of the things that's sold with it. Yes. Yes. But uh, as far as your own cases, give me one really shocker. What is a real shocker case that you've been on? that you'd like to share with us as far as your own investigations um okay i've been doing this to everybody by okay. the way so 
It's not that you're, you we know. We were, last summer, we were up in uh, Alton, Illinois, at Mineral Springs Hotel. But well, the funny thing the is, the yes, the oh, you know it, yes. And I'm trying to explain. Intimately. To, 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 to explain to the people, I mean, I'm using, you know, I got the high-tech equipment, and I pull out my uh, Mel REM with the special uh, EMF detector on there, and it doesn't go off if you touch an inanimate objects with the antenna, but I can touch the carpeting, the wood, the wood railing, the plaster on the wall, and the setting the meter off. I go outside, and I touch the cement planter. I really? I fake plant, and the meter's going like crazy. So I'm like, okay, that's rather interesting, but knowing a little bit of history, you know, knowing that the energy is in the ground, the whole, everything there is saturated. And okay. what happened then? Um, we were going through our walkthrough. And we're going through there, and we're going through the ballroom. And there's a little alcove off to the side. And we're all like going single file, and we're turning around and checking it out. And I'm the second to last person. Or I, actually, I am the last person. And Johnny was in front of me. And we're going and walking, and I would go to turn around, and this guy. I see this guy dressed in a white ruffled shirt, a black vest, yes, uh, black pants, black boots, but the style of around 1900, 1910, wow. late 1800s. And here is all the shoveled and wavy. He's got like a uh, mustache and a goatee, the old style goatee. Yeah. And he's walking right past me with his head down. And he picks his head up and looks at me. <laughs> and the look in his eyes uh, basically were like, F you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you know, I know he's not part of Fundamentally unattainable. Yeah. <laughs> and he turned, and he, with that, he gets two feet behind me, turns around, walks up right behind me and starts punching me in the kidney. Whoa. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, I've been doing this long enough, you know. It really, you know, if he's there, you know, I, I can't feel the energy. It, it really won't hurt misjudged it. After the fourth or fifth punch, I went down in severe agony. Oh, my God. And I went down in a grunt of pain, and Johnny turned around and looked at me. He's looking up, looking down, looking up, looking down, looking up, looking down. He goes, you saw that, didn't you? He goes, yeah, but I don't know what I saw. You saw him. He goes, and he's looking at, looking in his direction. Where he, was. he goes, I don't know what I saw. And I'm Whoa. like, are you okay? He's, just give me a hand. Help me up. It's, mm. I'm just like, Okay, this is rather interesting, and we found we found, later found out who it was. It was, uh, if you know the history of the building, it was Arthur, the painter. The, I'll uh, be doggone. The alcoholic painter who stayed, stayed there at the hotel in lieu of painting the mural in the main hallway, and he was, uh, he was an alcoholic. Yeah. And they say that uh, he put a gun to his head on his bed and blew his brains out. Oh. Well, yeah. with our uh, spirit boxes, we're sitting there talking to him, and he's telling us how he's being chased down the hall by a man with a gun. Aha! Uh -huh. Oh, that blows right out of the water that he blew his brains out. Yeah. You know, and uh, what was his name, Ruby? I mean, he must have knew something. Yeah. I mean, it was, the place was absolutely amazing. Wow. Now, we were there again a couple months later, and they're totally renovating the place so they can, you know, for uh, people can rent you know apartments there or you can uh, rent rooms they're doing a beautiful job i'd like to see them redo the pool i think that would be great oh yeah but uh knowing the history that they gotta have there and everything it's still, it still may be dangerous from all the ex unexplained deaths that happened there but you know very unusual especially place especially this one guy who was 
who was in the pool and his wife went up to do something and she she came back and found a stiletto pump in his head. That is not the way you wear the stilettos. I know. I mean, especially, I mean, I don't know why he was wearing them in the pool. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to be stylish. There he goes, just trying to be stylish. (laughs) With all the renovations there, you know the activity is going to be at a heightened level. Yes. Now, when are they supposed to be done with it? or oh, it's, it's going to be years. They're doing yeah. it stages. But you, well, it is a, you know, it's a historical it's, it's monument. It's not yeah, just yeah. the Mineral Springs Hotel. It's the whole town. Yeah, the whole town is creepy. The uh, Like I always point out, the uh, uh, Confederate um, encampment there, that got me. I didn't even know it was there. I uh, went to the parking lot, and I was petrified, and I was there on business. So I told my partner, I says, I don't know what's going on with this location, but I have to check this out. And I walked towards where they have the plaque, you know, which was for me about a half a block away or more. And I'm like, what was here? What is this plaque? And there it was, and it hit me all at once, and I Mm -hmm. swear I could have faint right there. Well, what they don't tell you, and when we were there the first time, it was like uh, the local historian who was there, like, pulling teeth from him I got the answer I said thank you that's all I needed to know it was Indian burial land oh there we go yes <laughs> now yes well, it's multiplied right you river. know you yeah. got a, a spring right up in the hotel that does it now the town was built with bricks from the prison Oh, okay, they say that I didn't know that. I haven't verified the uh, amount of deaths for the first prison, but they oh, said there were like 10,000 oh, people ridiculous. who died there. Yeah. And they built, they tore down the prison and used the bricks to build the town. <laughs> I mean, so like, this whole place is taboo. Yeah, Any way you look at it, yes. there's something not going on right, you know, in, in Alton. But it's beautiful. It oh, is. I love it. It's You have that feeling, and it's and like for anybody who has the ability to pick that up yeah. you're going to have it all the time but just the historical aspect the people are wonderful what a beautiful sight you know look down the river i thought about taking a walk up the hill oh yeah oh <laughs> yeah forget that yeah forget it <laughs> yeah I, I remember that all too well and um it, it's just a, a town with many mysteries and with so much history yes. that you can't help but have some of that creep through. Yes. And uh, I just, you know, I just love it. I wish you guys good luck down there. You do some more yeah, work. We'll be back there again yeah. soon. It's kind of like Burlington, Wisconsin. Yeah. You, yeah. Oh, Burlington has a lot of weird stuff. And yep. Everybody says, well, Mary's just uh, making it. Uh, uh, sorry, she Charlie. Not making it this up. is a place with a uh, lot of energy. Uh, if some, not a portal or some darn thing. Someone is writing a book about the tunnels of Burlington. Oh, really? Yes, and uh, I talked to her last week. She goes, I got to talk to you about some of the things that I found out about there and the mysteries and the unexplained deaths and what they're going on. And, of course, I gave her some insight last time I saw her what to look for, what to ask around for. And she, she go, and she's like, you were right. I got to talk to you on some of this wow. stuff. Yeah, there's, there's I mean, a lot of strange things, not just the vortexes, but... It's... it's it's interdimensional. Yes, that interdimensional majorly, especially aspect. Especially in the haunted woods. Yes. She, Mary was taking pictures, and she was right behind me, and we we're wearing our one foot out of the grave T-shirts. And I go, "There's a, there's a vortex right here. There's a, a dimensional shift right here." So she's like, "Okay." And I'm going with my uh, full spectrum camera, 
and I could see everything to the left, to the right, to the ground, or in the sky. Nothing right there was pitch black. Mm. Nothing. So as I'm walking through, she's taking pictures. Click, click, click. And I got them. I put them up on my Facebook page. All the pictures that she's taking, as soon as we're walking through the dimensional shift, are black. Wow. Straight black. There's nothing there. Yeah, she's like, all of a sudden you're gone. You're not in This America. sounds so much like, remember the case I was telling up in Fredericks, Wisconsin? Yes. Same thing there. Was, she was taking pictures of him yeah. while he was getting hit with the uh, the beam, uh, laser beam or whatever. Yeah. And he was transparent. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. It's amazing. All the photos, nothing. Yeah. yeah. But then again, this area is, I think, very much like that area, too. Mm-hmm. It's where the portals or wherever is the veil of the next yeah. dimension. Right. Maybe th- very thin. I think I counted, I have to go back, I, say, I think five, total of five shifts. Really? Just walking to the medicine circle. Wow. Yeah. And it was weird because the first time we were up there and I was taking pictures, I just kind of attributed it to blurry pictures. Yeah. You know, sometimes you move the camera, sometimes you don't focus right. Right. And I thought, wow, you know, I, was I really having that hard of a night? But when there's six or seven consecutive pictures nice. that look like that, and then they're fine, they're after. right. But yeah, then you know, yeah, what you see, you see swirls in them. Yeah. yeah. And then you see, you see some of the pictures that you look blurry. The content is blurred, but everything else around it is in a vertical mm-hmm. motion, like 45 degree rain, but it's not raining. Yeah. But in, in the constant beams of it, just like slats of it. Yeah. Now these type of phenomena are also recorded in other people's cameras. Yes, not so yes. it's not unique to yours. Yes. No, not it's at all. not. See, this is this is what people yeah. have to pay attention. Yes. To. Yeah, Mary had taken pictures of Jeff and I sitting on a stone when he was doing a spirit box session, and we're there in the picture. The both of us are sitting there right next to each other in the picture, and the very next picture you can see our legs. And you see two of us. Up. And then there's two of us, and it's I've never really seen strange how do you do double exposure on a digital, digital camera? Yeah, and it's like overlaid right on top of each other. It's very weird. Yeah, yeah. we got just, one of those at the Congress Hotel. Actually, we got a bunch of people what a who got great double exposures. Place. Yes. Yeah. Oh, we got a shadow person there that. Uh, that we got him in the in the double exposure. You see it like someone off. Yeah. I actually got all that, but I got a shadow person there. Adam Selzer uh, is actually putting in his new book. It's actually the best he's ever seen. Very the cool. Congress is an amazing place. Yeah. I know. Oh, we got double exposures. I heard you saying that. I mean, yeah. that doesn't happen on I'm digital. Not on a digital, digital no. no, no, no. Well, I got I got about eight of them actually at the Congress, which just doesn't happen. No. And I've got orange and yellow and purplish lights shooting yes. around the room. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so we had the fire at my Frank's box out, and when it's doing it, you got. Orange and red and green the and some purple coming, coming out, of the, out of the box. Yeah, yeah. I had them coming off the chairs. They were shooting out of the chairs. One actually was like a hand holding on top of yes. the chair. One that looks like, like a hand purple. pointing it's and reaching just, out. Yeah, weirdest stuff. Yeah. That was all at the Congress. The only time I ever got that. Wow, that's you know, cool. We, how many times we hear people talking about the uh, you know Mary Sutherland stuff up there, and this stuff has been validated. Oh yeah. yeah, multiple. Things. I actually oh, yeah. just talked to uh, Adam about getting some private things set up at the uh, Congress again. I want to do a remote there live and see if it screws oh, up you, our you, show. You have to let us know. <laughs> yeah, we would love yeah, to be I'll there. Let you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're going down to Alton, and I've had some strange stuff happen. I actually down. want to go. Th- where are you guys going? I actually want to go to there. I've never been to that we one were, yet. We've been at the Mineral Springs Hotel twice. Yeah. Uh, we're I want to get down not there. Go until next year because 
shows now at the end of the year. The right. holidays all coming up. It gets a little harder. Well, we um, talked about doing a show from there too. Actually, yeah. yeah. We want to start actually traveling and doing some of these remotes right yes. from the locations. Yes. Yeah. It is. Except it requires money. <laughs> Which is a serious issue in us. <laughs> not just you guys. That's why we try not to yeah. do so much. Well, <laughs> but you know, like for the Mineral Springs Hotel, I believe it was $35 a person. Yeah. And you could stay there all night. Wow. Yeah. Very reasonable. Have you guys been to Waverly before? Yes. Yes. Did you get some neat stuff there? We did an hour and a half box session up on the roof. Did some amazing stuff. Um, we did... We had... I had uh, my wife for my birthday gave me uh, night vision binoculars. We saw the nurse who roams the fifth floor uh-huh. come out. Saw her, and it was uh, Rick Hayes was there with us, overlaid on top of her, and literally uh-huh. we're like, "Oh my God, you guys got to see this!" And we fired up the night vision binoculars, and you could see her overlaid, wearing her uh, her sweater with the uh, medical logo. Her glasses with the little really? pearl, uh, th- pearl necklace. necklace around. Well, that, that place is amazing. I've yeah. got some of the. Yeah. I got a video actually. I'm into video equipment. I have some video setups that are amazing, and I got a, a video of something flying through a wall into the morgue, doing loop de loops and shooting out through the other wall. And I've wow. actually got it on video. Very cool. And you got uh, black shadows floating through the ceilings in there too. It's just yeah. a crazy place. I wasn't <laughs> able to go in the morgue when we were there. We started out going down, and it was like someone yeah. just kept telling me, "Don't do it." Did you go into the death tunnel? Yeah, no, yeah. I did not. I did yeah. not. We had. I was just saying someone earlier in death tunnel. We had our lights, our our bulbs blow up on our flashlight. I've heard that. Not happens. the batteries, the, the bulbs. bulbs wow. They were down in the bottom of this tunnel, blacker and black, and all our lights are dead. <laughs> we were, we were on the third floor. Uh huh. We were doing uh, a ghost box session. And they all wanted to talk to each other, so I'm going to say, okay, you don't want to talk to me, fine, I'm going to shut it off and go to another location. Yeah. So, I was videotaping it. So, I had uh, my uh, Sony high-def video camera on. Uh-huh. I had it strapped in my hand, and I had I got the uh, I had the $100 boom microphone on it, and I'm taking it off the tripod. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, my arm... My left arm almost gets ripped out of my socket, it and I'm like, "Oh, sh-, you know." Uh-huh. And I'm just like, and all of a sudden, out of my hand, the camera goes flying off the tripod and bounces to the floor. Huh. Now you're not—that's like 12-inch thick cement floors. Yeah, I know. And you heard smash, 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 smash. That's not Everyone good for. Everyone kept running for the rest of the, <laughs> that was in there. Yeah. And Nancy's like, "Well, what happened? Jeff dropped the camera," and they're like, "No, that was not a drop." Because yeah. it was bouncing. Well, actually, the, thrown the down. guy I had with me, uh, a friend of mine named Matt, we were walking on the third floor, I believe, and he's holding his camera on his tripod. Yep. Out of the clear blue, his camera goes up and cracks him in the head. And I'm, you know, I'm like, why did you do that? He goes, I didn't do it, you <laughs> fool. But it flies up and hits him in the head. Yeah. I mean, my camera was brand new. I'm here. I'm like, yeah. oh, well, there goes eight hundred dollars. And I was like, you did not just drop your camera, did you? He goes, I didn't drop it. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, and, every, yeah, and everyone came running. I had a uh, a IR light on there. It stood up. Batteries, eight batteries. Yeah, you're flew lucky. Out. Mo- the equipment nowadays yeah. is so cheap yeah. it breaks. The hundred dollar microphone, the, uh-huh. the boom microphone. That was in a hundred different pieces. Yeah. I'm like, if that's the least of the problems, like eight hundred dollar camera is fine. My, uh, you know, my my Paul Bradford special light is okay yeah. and everything. Pick up the camera, it's beat up, it works. That place is notorious for physical contact. Yes. Did uh, 
Did you have any of that vast temperature changes in there? Yes. We had one that, it's Kentucky, so it's hot and humid. We had one from like 80 degrees down to like 40, instantaneous in a stairwell, yep. and then something pushed me. I'm like, whoa, there's a sign. Oh, God, I couldn't. And the night that we were there, it was It was, actually, it was storming. It was stormy, but not raining. Right. Yeah, us too. All around yeah. Yeah. Waverly. Yeah. But not Waverly. Oh, yeah, we had so a. Like it was actually thunder. cool. It was like a science fiction movie. We had a thunderstorm right when we were there. It was really cool, actually. We, we were. We went. We next went to the fourth floor, and went to the West Wing uh-huh. of it. Where, after a couple minutes, I was uh, not so politely kicked out. Yeah. Uh, being attacked. And I'm just like, I'm not telling you. I mean, I was on the ground. I was in pain. There's so much contact in there. Yeah, they place. were like twisting my guts. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah, and then we were all done. I went back downstairs, and I'm telling the people we're with, you know, what's going on. They're like, you know, it's funny about that area and the room you were in. Because uh-huh. a couple of weeks ago, some investigators were there, and he got into a fight. You uh-huh. know, a physical fight, and they right. had to be escorted out. But it really pissed off the spirits. Uh huh. So they didn't want the, the you know any more paranormal investigators there. Oh, right. They get fed I up mean, with everybody. I didn't even have a chance to defend myself or talk to them. They just went on. Full well, you really attack. can't defend yourself with them, well, though, Jeff. You, I can't you, you, you can. <laughs> but you know. Sometimes you can maybe reason a little bit if they do it once. It's like, yeah. hey, I really don't like that, you know. But yeah, but yeah. they they just like, actually we've had the most out. physical contact in that place of anywhere yeah. ever. Yes. Yeah, it was and amazing. It's just the subtle little things like when we were up on the roof yeah and we were doing a box session and i had these two little boys that were talking oh, to God. me in the box had us in tears oh man and i'm such a big emotional crybaby anyway because yeah. that's how they get me emotionally how they were abused and i was i was sitting oh. there talking with these two little boys and and everybody else is watching rick hayes and what's going on with him and i'm like you know I, i'm crying and i'm emotional and then it's like i feel somebody just stroke my cheek and i'm yeah. Well, that whole okay, place is full of emotion, upset, too, though. But, well, yeah, you know, it is. And the history behind it is just... Yeah, that's... Well, I, had, I brought uh, Ken Berg when I went with for a psychic. Oh, and, I know Ken. And Ken was uh, overcome. Yeah. He yes. actually had to leave the building because it, it was too much for him. We sent much. him in at first, you know, big, brave people. <laughs> like, Ken, you go and check it out. And after about 15 minutes, he comes out and, like, what's the verdict? He goes... This is the most haunted building I've ever seen in my yep. life. When we first started, when we got there, you sent people in for a 30-minute walkthrough where you want to set up and come back down, and we regroup. Right. You're given different colors and different floors, and you swap it out. Uh-huh. And you swap out. And that lasted all of yeah, five minutes. Unfortunately, the only r- real way to do this is to buy the place out. Th- that's what we did. Yeah. We actually night. bought it. We had 12 people. We had the whole building. Yep. Yeah. And that That's was cool. Yeah. You know, the weird thing is, is we, we separated and kind of walked around. And actually, I was just talking about this the other day with my brother. There was like some bizarre time voids. We would, we're, there's 12 of us in the building. The building's big, but not that big. Yeah. But we never ran across each other. Isn't that amazing? It's, it's yeah. like we never saw, we have yeah. flashlights. You could yeah. see it. Yeah. It was a weird, it's like, like we're yeah, all in our little zone. Yeah, and, and you when you can hear somebody, but it's not the voice of the people yes. that you're with. Yeah, that, that place that actually is, is really kind of gave yeah. me the creeps. Normally, I don't get when I got pushed down the stairway. That that kind of yeah. got yeah. me a little nervous yeah. too. Well, we're walking. We, you know, when you when you leave the commissary area with right. the fireplaces and everything, and you just go down to go down the stairs and you go down the hallway. It's about a couple hundred feet long. You have to uh-huh. go left. 
I'm with this guy Dave or, or Tommy, and he got the flashlight out, and I'm like, Tom, turn your flashlight off. He goes, Why? I won't be able to see. Just please turn your flashlight uh-huh. off. Why? Because the gentleman down there who's in the doorway, he goes, he doesn't like the light. Uh-huh. Goes, well, how do you know? He says he asked me. He said he doesn't like the light. Would I please please turn off the flashlight? Uh-huh. He goes, he really asked you that. And he goes, and I'm like, yeah. He goes, please turn it off. <laughs> And then he shuts it off. He goes, okay. He goes, if you're there, show, show yourself to me. And you know when you're seeing aberration in the dark, it's a different right. gray shade. Uh-huh. And he just walks out of the doorway and stands in the middle there. And Tom's like, um, okay, yeah, <laughs> I see him. And we're like, thank you, we'll leave the light out. That place. Did you ever go in there? We actually, Towards the end of the night, we had eight hours. We got brave. We were all afraid at first. And we'd actually go into rooms, turn off all our equipment and cameras, and just sit in the pitch black. That's a weird experience, actually. <laughs> it is. Most we of the we tried that, but yeah. too many people well, if you're in a group, coming yeah. down. Do it right. Yeah. Actually, the ideal group to go there is maybe four or five people. Oh yeah. yeah. Really, so. but you know, a thousand no bucks at, oh, yeah. privately yeah. is a thousand bucks. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, it's well worth it. Yeah. It's, uh, if you get four people, you're only two hundred fifty bucks. Yeah, you yeah. Can do it Sunday through Thursday, I believe. Right. Yep, uh, a friend of mine just did that at the beginning of August. He bought it out, so they had like 12 people. It's well worth it. Yes. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I would like to go back to be able to go into the morgue. Like I said, I just I just couldn't do it. By, by the end of the night, I was emotionally spent. And yeah. Just, um, even though it wasn't freezing cold, it chills you to the bone. Yeah, no, you know, it, it's, it's humid there, but yes. you kept getting cold spots. Yeah. And when you're in hot, humid weather, you really notice a cold spot. Oh, definitely. <laughs> and, and I mean, we had sweatshirts on and jackets on and, and we, we went down into the commissary area and I sat down in one of the chairs near the fireplace uh-huh. and I was like, I just need to sit here because I need to come down from all these emotions and just feeling so awful and feeling so cold but then feeling kind of calm and serene at the same time. It's like everything yeah. is getting well, you uh, there's, on There's good and bad in that building is what it yeah. is. I yeah. mean, there's Nice the people good, in there, the but there's some evil ones. There were some nasty <laughs> doctors yeah. in there. The ones that yeah. hit you. <laughs> the good thing about this place, uh huh, that ninety-five percent of the people that go in there, yeah, have the same experience. Yeah, yeah. which validates over and over. it. Makes yes, it, a lot it better, validates right? it. You know, and I, we saw some people when we were there going, "Well, I'm going to take pick up something from the outside. Well, I'm going to take this home." Oh, right. No, 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 no. You, no. you that. put that no, back no, where no. you found it. Yeah. That, that's a bad sign. Because <laughs> you don't know People what you're going to be. All the time. Yeah. We had gone to a, a convention and he was auctioning off items that he took from haunted locations. Well, that, 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 you're just asking for a curse. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I, I yeah. won most of them, but I I bought like 100 Listen, tickets no, 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 and I couldn't no, no, I couldn't go through no, it fast enough, so no. I kept calling other numbers. So I'm glad I didn't get one I, of them. I don't actually know if I'd want something no, from there. No, he did win one, and I was like, no. Redraw. Yeah. It's not happening. It's not coming over. Have you guys ever made the trip up to Valiska? No. Not yet. The That's another Villisca amazing axe murder house. Yeah. You got some footage there, too. You always see the footage of the door opening and closing. Mm-hmm. Well, if you ever notice that footage, generally, you don't see the top of the door or the bottom. Yeah. So, in my mind, yeah. So we, I got footage with the full door. And that it, way it, and it be. closed. Mm-hmm. Well, then afterwards, I don't believe anything, went back with levels and equipment. It's an old house. Right. Well, the door is angled, but it's angled the opposite. The opposite direction. It should have opened. Oh, cool. And also that ball. Have you seen the ball roll? Yes. Mm-hmm. Same. People always show it starting under the bed. Well, how do I know you're not under the bed doing yeah. it? We had two cameras on the ball, middle of the room. 
all alone. We look back at the video, and I'll be damned if that ball doesn't start rolling around the room and go back to where it started with two cameras on it oh, in the God. middle of the room. Mm -hmm. I'm like, so there's one for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and the was... thing is, you know you're getting that because the spirits want you to see it. Oh, yeah, because yeah. they're playing games. Yeah, it's yep. like parlor tricks. You know, that's yeah. what we like to call them all the time. Well, that's what, when tricks. we, when we do here. with the spirit box, you know, people want us to give me some proof. Give me this. this they don't like parlor tricks. There's no such thing as proof either. I mean, it just, right. I mean, if they want to cooperate, want, they do. Says, yeah. If I don't say, tell me this gentleman's name, right. they'll give me your full name. When they ask, what's your right. middle name? It's such an oddball middle name. They come uh -huh. up with it. But you ask them to do something for parlor tricks. And they're not going to do it. They're not well, going to well, do it. Well, spirits are just ex-people. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, I got an attitude. I die and you tell me to do something. I'll be yeah. like, do it yourself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much. It's, it's just like we were having a discussion earlier with... Uh, people that provoke. Yeah. Oh, As I don't believe in that. We, we have a real hard time with that too. And and it's like you know what? If you provoke, what are you getting? You're getting that negativity. Yeah. Is that what you really want? Yeah. You don't want to. Do you want that pissed off, off person, or do you want the person who's going to come that, to you and, in a nice and, way? The dumbest statement that someone has just recently has made numerous times is, "Come into me." Yeah. No, that, that's asking um, for trouble. Um, that's an invitation straight from Does the hell. word possession mean anything? Yes. <laughs> and then when you sit there and your head starts spinning, don't freaking call yeah. me because I'm not yeah. helping I mean, you. I deal with people with possession and uh -huh. help free them, okay? Yeah. I, I just did a five-year-old I've never done with possession, and to be honest... If I ran across it, I would find some sort of... I'm not going to equip to do that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, that's just it. You know, and, you know, yeah. once, it, once it gets a grip into you, yeah. you never invite. Oh, no. I mean, the year, uh, last year and a half ago, two years ago, there was someone out in Seattle, him and uh -huh. his wife. He invited something into him one night. And she calls me up and she's like, well, where, where is he? Where is he going? And I'm like, this is what I see. I'm describing... This house, this little uh, alcove in the back. She goes, "That's the back side of my friend's house." So right. I'm gonna call over there. And so she calls me back three minutes later. He's there. He was just walking up to the house. Uh huh. But he invited uh, an entity into him. You, know, you never do that. And I mean, it's from the old vampire movies. Right. You don't invite him in. No. <laughs> yeah. Look what happened to the priest in the Exorcist. Yeah. Right? He went out the window for a reason. Uh -huh. Yes. <laughs> well, that's like people. Some people that do EVPs too much. You actually are inviting them into it. Yes, you have to overdo I, it. That's some people when I they say here, listen to this EVP, listen to that, and I come back to some, to them, dump them off your computer. Any DVD or CDs you got or anything? Don't do them again. Get them off your computer. You save them. Put them out. Put them somewhere else in a garage. It's laced with energy. Yeah, well, I'm and not. It's, I'm the same with Ouija boards too. My personal oh, opinion no. is no, those no, are no, evil. No, no. No, we're I, the only country that sells them as a toy. Yeah. You can't purchase them. Yeah, what kind of toy is that? Yeah. <laughs> Talk to the devil. <laughs> yeah. And what did they have, remember, at Christmas that one year? Yeah. They had a Barbie, Barbie Ouija, Ouija board. Barbie Ouija board. A freaking pink Barbie Ouija board. You're kidding. Board. Yeah. I looked at him and I said, ooh, that would kind of See, be I won't nice use those. I actually grew up with a Ouija board. Oh, and she got rid of it. And, well, being a 16-year-old, they walked to the house, left in the car, and my mom knew it was there. I've never touched the board since then. Nope. That gave me chills. Yeah. <laughs> I would still yeah, like to I have don't. one, but yeah. not like what we 
people know what this card They cardboard. just make me nervous because that's a possession thing, too. I want a, one of the wooded ones from the 1800s. Uh-huh. I don't know. Now it's... What happened to the last one you brought in the house? It was brand new. You threw it away. Oh, I, I burned. I, I burned one once. Well, it, it <laughs> I'm not going to use it. Yeah. I just want to have it. Yeah, yeah. It, it was. It was in the flood when the basement. Flooded. Well, as long as it doesn't start spelling out by itself when you're yeah. in one yes. room well, and you walk in there and it's spelling like crazy. Oh, yeah, I guess I, I have I, uh, um, uh, my list of things that I have. I have uh, binding spells uh-huh. and uh, pr- prayers and everything. And I can seal it, and you know, and I'll just I'll take it at work to work, and you know, yeah. but just an old-fashioned, the original wood ones. Yeah. yeah. And needless to say, my sister and her friends were playing with the Ouija board, and my sister's a few years older than I am, and I just happened to walk into the room when they were asking questions, and I just like flew at the table, grabbed this thing off the table. Oh, I, I actually said, no, despise no, them. I got no, people on my no. website all the time talking about them, and I always advise. Get rid of it. Don't. And some people think it's a joke, but well, they do that's my honest opinion. Toy, you know, they don't understand that you're opening up a doorway you can't close. No. I don't care what you say, and, you can't close hey, it. Aunt Clara could be coming through. It says, yeah. spells out her name. Well, how do you know? Yeah, how well, that's you know a, that was the situation with my mother when she had that issue happen. It was supposed to be, I believe it was a great-grandmother. And it knew everything my great-grandmother did, but all of a sudden... The picture started changing, and she realized it wasn't at all yep. what yeah. it was supposed to and be. And they know things because they're on the other side, too. Well, plus know? they can hear you. Yeah. You know, you're thinking about something, and they pick oh, yeah. that right yeah. up. Yeah. When, when I lived in the city with uh, uh, my, the, my girlfriend before I met my wife, we had, had a Ouija board, and we played with it one night. And it seemed to be okay and everything, and all of a sudden started going crazy. I'm like, oh, what is your name? And it spelled out Malachi. Oh, okay. I'm like, okay, that I don't want to so know. we know why that relationship went south, right? <laughs> yes. Ouija board. Oh, and you know, it was a fem- predominant female household. Yeah. And her and I, she and I used to get into fights every now and then. And there was a female spirit that resided in the basement. Uh-huh. And well, being in a female predominant household, I'm the enemy. Right. I was under attack for about a week, week and a half until I realized what it was. And I had to apologize to the spirit. That's creepy. <laughs> yeah, it's tough, but you know, it's it's all the responsibility factor. Yep. You know, we, oh, I we know. all need to, as you know, you can call yourself an investigator. You, I hate that word. I don't. Oh, I actually never called myself more. that, but they p- printed it in the newspaper. They said Did I was. Did you get a little angry? So, well, no, I'm like. Wow, am I okay? Huh? Yeah, and I used yeah. to kid. I'm like, it says it in the paper. I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. She, my, she likes paranormal explorers. Exa- bingo. I'm not that's investigating. A, that's I'm exactly exploring. what I say. Or yeah. adventurer. That's yeah, what I actually definitely. say. You know yep. what? I'm, I'm not necessarily out there to find a conclusion or right. proof. I'm out there to experience. Yeah, I'm I like adventurer because you're out. Yeah. Trying to do an adventure. Yep. Yeah, that's like calling yourself an expert. That's because yeah. an investigator, I didn't go to some sort of school. No, I'm yeah. not a cop. I no. don't do this. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but okay. it's, it's all in taking responsibility for what we're doing and, you know, being able to deal with what we might bring up. Right. Well, so know, many groups now, are, the paranormal field is an absolute well, shamble. Oh, it is. Unfortunately, the, the, TV st- the stigmata that's left I'm, from I'm the not, TV I don't know shows. how you guys are, but personally, I'm not the TV show fan. I don't no, like any I don't of these. television except oh, for my own show. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I, you can go out and buy a digital camera, a digital recorder, a uh-huh. video camera, uh-huh. and go play in the cemetery. Right. Okay, and nine times out of ten, you had some, some something come home with you. Yeah. No, that's normal, though, isn't it? Do? I always did that when I was a kid. <laughs> that's how I grew up. <laughs> what else are you yeah, supposed to do? Yeah, it's normal for us. Right, we don't play, play. We don't like that. 
Yeah, and, and it's, yeah. it's not, it's, it's understanding when you open that door, what to expect. You know, it's understanding. Well, and sometimes that door doesn't close. No. You know what, most of the time when you don't know what you're doing, And then if you, if, you, if you can't close it, a smart person knows to reach out and ask someone right. to help to find someone. Or move really fast. Just yeah. <laughs> yeah. list the house and go. Talking earlier about an experience that we had when we were at Sloss Furnace. And coming back from Sloss, like that, that whole week after we were back, uh-huh. everybody who we went with that we had a conversation with had the same feeling of just... It was a, not fun, even a black cloud was, was like, hanging yeah. over everyone. It was like, you know, I, I, was, I, I would it, drive to work and It was I would too fly. much psychic energy the whole yeah. weekend. See, I had that happen at Bachelors Grove one time. Almost a month after. I, used to, I go there all the time, but one particular time, about a month afterwards, something wasn't right. Everything yeah. went wrong. I just yeah. didn't feel right. You feel blind. Yep. It's like... I described it to him as I feel like I'm coming down with a cold, well, but that's not we, it. That we, never leaves. Yeah. Yeah. You will have to yeah. go with us there sometime because we know where the the, the spot is. At, at Bachelors Grove? Yeah, you know yeah, what I'm talking the about, woods. these spots? Yeah, I know a lot of them. I've been going there the since same, the late this, 70s, yeah. these, actually. We actually found it the first time out looking. Uh-huh. It led it right to it. The satanic rituals where the burnings were. Yeah. We found yeah. it. Well, actually, one time when I was about 16 or 17, I saw people out there having a ritual. Whether it was real or not, because just because you see a ritual doesn't mean it's real. It could be right. wannabes. Well, thank you very much. One foot out of the grave, everybody. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. Edgeonair.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Cop Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on the Edgeonair.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit ufo-info.com. You're listening to Threshold Radio right now. We have Sam walking around doing interviews live from the Chicago Ghost Conference. Sam, are you there? Well, JC, how long have you been in the uh, paranormal business here? I've actually been investigating for uh, about three and a half years now. And what is your area of expertise or you find an interest in as far as what type of instrumentation or have you found yourself looking more towards, say, for instance, EVPs or... What are you doing? Um, I really, I take a little bit of everything into consideration. If I had to really just kind of pinpoint and say, what is my strength or what is my interest? I would have to look at and say EVP. Um, And I only kind of come from that because of the experiences that I've had of actually capturing the EVP. And I've got a ton of great files for that. Um, pictures, not so much. Video, not so much. But I still consider the whole gamut when I'm doing the review of all the evidence. Now, how did you start out, first of all? Well, I have to admit, I mean, there was a strong interest uh, stemming back even to my childhood days about uh, folklore, ghost stories, and there's so much that you could hear. Um, being from northwest Indiana, you hear quite a bit. Not only so much centered right around that locale, but also within Chicago. And... My, I guess my naivety, if you will, of growing up through my teenage and early adulthood years, 
you didn't really hear too much about paranormal teams in the area. And I always thought that maybe it was just kind of a myth. It was never really brought to my attention that people actually done this. I was aware of Hollywood films such as Poltergeist that had teams that did that, but um, I never really had the true pleasure of experiencing anything until actually the TV shows that came out. And, and what are the ones that really got you motivated? Well, the one that actually really kind of brought to my attention that people were actually out there doing this is the Ghost Hunter TV series with Taps. Um, and not to, not to say that I would fancy or model myself after anybody else's style. When did they come out? This. Do you remember what year they came Oh, I would say was, if memory best recollects to me, is about 2006, 2007. 2006, 2007. Um, they were the second generation of, of what I consider to be reality TV paranormal. Because I know Chris was that first. Chris had started out, Chris Fleming, with uh, uh, his first, well, his was uh, uh, Dead Famous. And then he, there were some other ones at the, around that same time. But this was the first series, and that was a second series of a very well done, um, serious, investigative research into the paranormal, I thought. No, and, and I agree. Um, and that's what really kind of got my gears spinning of, oh, wow, there are people actually out there doing this. So that's when I started looking and diving into it and saying, well, who's here local within my area that's doing this? And I started looking into that, and I found other teams that were out there I started working with and um, started doing also some of my own freelancing and just going into places, not by myself, but I would take other interested persons, such as friends, maybe family, and just start going into that from those angles. So over the last three and a half years, I've done quite a bit of investigations and hunts and um, participating in events such as the Ghost Conference here today in Chicago. Now, most of your investigations are in what area, would you say? I'm sorry, could you what, repeat What that? area are, you, are most of your investigations? Region, area? That, that's a really great question. We do, from the Northwest Indiana, we do a lot of local um, investigative work. And we will take into consideration private residents as well as private businesses. Um, but we also go to sites where maybe there might be some ghost lore, ghost stories associated with that location. See if we can come back with something. An example of that would be Reader Road in Griffith, Indiana. A great, uh, well, everybody has their own hitchhiker story somewhere, but this is one that actually has its own that's really defined to the northwest Indiana area. So we would take locations like that into consideration, and we also travel. And we go to locations where we might hear of either through TV media um, or even just by word of mouth, by networking from some of the other teams. So the name of your group is? We are Heartland Hauntings. And how can someone get in contact with you or find more about it? We, group? we do have a website. It is still somewhat under development. But uh, if you go to www.hhghosts, that's plural, ghosts.com, we are also on Facebook. We have two pages on Facebook. One is a group page one is an organization page. Good. I want to thank you very much, JC. I guess some more excitement is going to take place and uh, be talking to you soon. That sounds wonderful. I appreciate the opportunity. And if right. I could just say real quickly to kind of uh, give, um, I want to give thanks to my co-founding partner who could not be here today, Len Miller. Um, you know, Len, wish you could be here today with us, buddy, but um, you know, we're running the show for you pretty well. Is he okay or is he going through some health issues there, there, there's been some health issues but okay uh, we'll get some prayers out and some good thoughts okay? we, we appreciate that most certainly thank we'll you be talking. Very, all right thank you very much that was sam ronto live from the chicago ghost conference coming up we have andrew silverman talking about the shrouded terrain next on threshold radio
TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit ufo Info.com. You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony K. With me is Sam Ronto and John Stevenson. And right now we have Andrew Silverman on the line. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, and yeah, for we- those people that don't know what the Shroud of Turin is, can you uh, give a little brief overview? Um, well, you were on the show before talking about this, but I just, you know, just give a little brief overview for those that don't know exactly what the Shroud of Turin yeah. is. Yeah, well, it's a, a 14 foot long piece of cloth that's kept in in Turin, Italy, um, which has some very interesting markings upon it. Well, you see, um, there's some there's some burn marks because it was it was caught in a in a, a couple of fires. Also, there's uh, some uh, blood stains on it, which or what appears to be blood stains that has been forensically tested to have been shown to be human blood. And also, that's the, the strangest thing is that it has on it the faint image of a of a man, both front and back. Now, until around 1898, it was thought that this was a, a faint yellowish-brown image that vaguely in the outline of a of a man, but people, you know, didn't know too much more than that. And then, in the uh, around that time, there was the uh, a photographer was allowed to take a, a photograph of it using um, 19th century techno- photographic technology at the time. And uh, what he, he did was they, they used to use very large photographic plates with long exposures and all of that. And the, the story goes that when he was developing the, the negative, that he nearly dropped his, his photographic plate because he noticed that the photographic negative of the Turin Shroud is a positive. In other words, the image itself is a photographic negative. So it, it's the and now um, people, uh, a, a team of team of scientists, most of them from the states, went to investigate the shroud in the the 1970s. They were called the uh, STIRP Shroud of Turin Research Project, and there were a whole bunch of of people from different different backgrounds: some Jewish, some Christian, some agnostic, some atheist, and so on. And um, they they went there pretty much with an open mind, you know, but a little bit skeptical. There's so many relics, they thought we're going to just go there, and in about five minutes we'll find we'll find the artist brushstroke sort of thing. They thought, and they were absolutely amazed when they all of the people who went there and and studied it as part of this uh, STIRP group, they found that they could not account for how the image could have got on the cloth. They found, you know, if you paint uh, a linen. It's a, it's a linen cloth. You see, um, you find that the you should have brush strokes. There should be directionality of it, and most importantly, you should be able to find the pigment in the cloth uh, aligned with where the image is, and it should soak right through the the cloth because that's what that's what paint does. Now, when they the chemists amongst them analysed the the image on the cloth, what they found was that it was a, a superficial, what's called a, a surface phenomenon, that it was only on the outermost fibrils of the cloth 
that there was image and there could be two fibrils next to each other one would have the image one wouldn't and it doesn't soak through and there's no chemicals added to the to the linen to to give it the change in color what they found by chemically analyzing it is the cellulose in the linen had been what the chemist call oxidized and dehydrated and that turned it on the fibrils that have changed color a slightly sepia hue sepia color yellowish brown and very similar in fact to what happens to um, an old book paper if you if you expose it to sunlight you know how it how it turns yellow yeah, it's like that age yeah yeah so that's what it is but it's it's fibril by fibril one has it one doesn't and in fact the intensity of the image it was found wasn't caused by the variation in how yellowy brown the fibrils uh, were were changed. It was to do with the density of how many fibrils per mm. unit area were changed. So it's more like pixels, if you like, like a mm. um, a black and white uh, newspaper print. And this this amazed them even more because they thought, well, if this was going to be, um, and you could, the, when you look close up to the cloth, very close, you can't see the image. If you do a, a close-up view of it, you see it from further back. And what they were saying is that if this had been painted, then the um, the painter would have had to have had a, a, a seven-foot-long paintbrush <laughs> with a <laughs> with a, the actual filament that was used to apply the paint had to be thinner than a human hair to get one dot at a time. <laughs> and it's and, the, and yet you, there is no paint on there. As I say, it's just a a change in the in the chemical structure of the fibrils as though they'd been exposed to to sunlight now I'll, I'll be coming back to that later okay now um the first thing of course i have to get out of the way when talking about the turin shroud is is the carbon dating because i'm sure many listeners will say yes well that was quite an interesting object but of course the scientists found when they carbon dated it that it was it was medieval well actually there's a lot of controversy about this and i was i was a student at the time when the um, when the uh, collaborative carbon dating study was published in the journal called called Nature, a very reputable scientific journal, um, but I noticed something because I read the whole the whole of the article because I was quite interested in this, and in the one of the corners where they had the box with the actual data statistics, there's some information there which actually implies that if you look at the the first thing for any carbon dating is that the, the part that you test has to be representative. It has to be a representative sample of the object you're trying to date, obviously, because otherwise there's no, no point really in dating it. Now, when if you look at the actual paper and look at the differences between the different laboratories that dated it and compare it against their, their quoted um, error range and so on, what you can actually deduce from this, using statistics, using mathematics, is that the hypothesis that the um, that the samples were what we call homogenous, that they all came, they all had a similar age, the ones that were dated, was could be disproved at the what's called the 95% confidence interval. Now, these were all samples that were taken from a very small um, seven centimeter by one centimeter strip of cloth in one corner of the cloth where it had been most handled and therefore most contaminated throughout history. So they, they actually, the carbon dating uh, group, they didn't follow the original protocol that had been planned beforehand. They were meant to take samples from 
lots of different parts of the cloth. It was supposed to be analyzed by seven different laboratories using two different methods. In the end, they just used one sample, which they divided amongst just three laboratories, all using the same the same method. Wasn't that part of a, a patch at one time too? I thought I heard. Well, yes, that's that's the, that's a good question. Now. Um, there was, after the carbon dating uh, report came out, some time later, there was a, a couple of researchers in, in the States, Benford and, and Marino, who had been looking, at the, um, been looking at the images of the shroud and noticed that they saw something a little bit strange in some of the, some of the pictures around the area of the part where the carbon dating sample was taken that implied it looked as though there was two different types of material there as though it had actually it's not actually a patch but what it is what they are suggesting is that it was a a repair what's known as a, a French um, the, this technique that the French nuns used to to be able to do and I think some of them still can um, of invisible it's called an invisible reweave that where the cloth has been damaged they sew new cloth into it within the the pattern of the the fibers that's that's already there such that you can't actually see clearly to the to the eye where where the patch is. Now Benford and Marino put forward this hypothesis, and one of the people from Sterp, who was actually a very eminent um, chemist from uh, Los Alamos Research Laboratories, no, no less, um, called uh, Dr. Raymond Rogers. Now he had initially felt that the shroud was genuine because he had no way of accounting for how anyone could have produce such a thing by any known method. In fact, even now, using 21st century uh, technology, no one can produce any, any copy that has any of the, that has all of the, the key features of it, some of which I've mentioned and some I, I will be mentioning shortly. Now, Rogers' um, sort of reaction to this was one of annoyance, because being a, a scientist and, and you know, trained in the scientific method, he felt okay, I thought it was genuine, carbon dating shows it's medieval, we don't know how a medieval artist could have done this since it's not painted, it's not made by any way that we know, but we have to accept what the data tells us. He called the, the uh, Benford and Marino, he referred to them as fringe uh, people, uh, researchers, and he said he was going to prove them wrong in five minutes. Uh, he was going to do the, the studies to, to show that samples from near the, the place that the carbon dating was done were representative of the rest of the cloth. And you know, before, before he died, he went on the record and was videoed to, um, to say that, you know, I intended to prove, prove them wrong, meaning Benford and Marino, I ended up proving them right. He found that the area around where the carbon dating was had a very different chemical, chemical structure. Um, for anyone who wants to, to check this out, um, they can find his, his research paper it was published in a, a journal called Thermochemica Acta, which is a peer-reviewed scientific journal uh, on thermochemistry. Um, and that his evidence found that they were right, that the part that was actually dated by the three laboratories, the laboratories hadn't done anything wrong in the dating. There was no, no one suggesting any, um, you know, uh, conspiracy or, or anything like that. They, they may well have dated the samples that they had in, in, in good faith and as accurately as they could. Well, the word I should use more scientifically is precisely. They dated precisely the samples that they were given 
but it wasn't accurate in the sense that mathematicians will understand the difference. But it, it wasn't it wasn't um, accurate in the sense of an accurate um, reflection of the of the rest of the cloth. It so they only had one piece. They didn't have numerous they had pieces. From um, from a part that was known to have been the most handled throughout history, and all the the um, artworks showing people holding the shroud, they're always holding it up by the corners, mm -hmm. and, and and that's where a lot of damage had happened. So if it had been repaired, that's where it's most likely to have been repaired. So anyway, that's the carbon dating, and um, many scientists have been been sort of lobbying the the church to, to give us more um, more samples. To, that could be could be carbon dated again to try and look into this further. Unfortunately, for for whatever reasons, the the church isn't willing to to allow that to be done. So that's just I wanted to get that out of the way about the carbon dating. So back to the back to the actual image. Um, as I say, it it's got photographic negative properties, which were only discovered in in 1898. And you can when you when you take a photographic negative, you see a very um, clear, well-resolved, anatomically perfect picture of a man on there with what looks like bloodstains and what has show been shown to actually be bloodstains chemically. Now, um, the then forensic pathologists, this is the next piece of the puzzle, looking at the bloodstains and looking at closely at the image of the man, have been able to, to treat the, the shroud, the image and the bloodstains. It's like a um, uh, a crime scene, if you like. What happened to this to this man? How you know that that had obviously uh, been died and then been wrapped in the the cloth. And incidentally, we know that he died that um, because of the fact that that despite the all of these wounds on there, which were quite you know severe wounds, mm -hmm. that if if he'd been wrapped in the cloth, um, then and he was still alive at the time. Then the blood wouldn't have stopped. Um, it, it, the, all that we see on the, in fact, because we can see traces that there had been a lot of damage to the um, to the scalp from a, a set of sharp objects like a cap of thorns that had been placed on his head. And uh, any of us who like like myself have worked in an emergency room because I, I've worked there for, um, as a, being a medical person myself um, will know that that scalp wounds bleed very very profusely and we would expect that, that, that the head image should be absolutely covered in blood but the fact that there's only um, a few small traces implies that only the the last blood that 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 he shed um, while as he was as he was dying was still um, in a state where it could be the stains could be transferred to the cloth and the rest had already had already dried up now the forensic pathologists looking at this shroud, they show they can see that this is someone who had been initially very cruelly tortured by being whipped many times, um, and you can see where the skin has been been pierced by what fits exactly with uh, what we have from um, archaeological and artistic um, recreations of of uh, what was known as the Roman flagrum, which was the kind of whip that the the Romans used to use to torture people before before they were crucified actually that's amazing it, it fits everything perfectly yeah <laughs> yeah and the um as well as the um the blood you can see um and you only can see this when you put you look at it in ultraviolet light you can see fluorescence of a ring around the blood which 
we now know would have been would have been serum and which is one blood clots the liquid that oozes out from the clot we we as uh, medical people we know as, as serum um, and we can see everything matches perfectly that we know that the blood stains were formed by a contact process that the dead body was wrapped in the shroud so we know he had been whipped we know that he had had uh, um, a cap of thorns had been had been placed on his on his scalp from the um, from the lines of blood that are coming from the head. We know that he had carried a, a heavy object over over his um, his shoulders, just as a like a, the side beam of a of a cross. And looking at the the ankles and the wrists, we can see that he was pierced through both. Now, the um, the point about this is that uh, in medieval art, if you look at any medieval art representation of crucifixions, they always, without exception, they show the nails going through the hands. Now, only very recently, within the past 100 years or so, have we known that actually if someone had been crucified through the hands, the hands wouldn't have been strong enough to take the weight of the body. It would have mm. just gone straight through. And so how did you know how did the, it happen to be so anatomically perfect not just that but if you put a nail through through the wrist where the the blood stains are coming from you go through a structure that we know as the median nerve now stimulation of that nerve such as would happen through passing a nail through it will cause the thumbs to draw in behind the hand behind the palm of the hand and that's exactly what you see on the, the shroud image you wow. see the four <laughs> fingers and and you don't see you don't see the thumbs now um, some pathologists have done studies on the actual um, the lines of blood coming from the wrist and they can actually calculate the, the angle that his arms would have been in as the blood was, was coming down um, and they've worked out that, that he was in a, a crucifixion position and in two different positions it's, it's uh, imagined that, that probably what happened is that he was trying to to relieve the pain on his feet which were also taking the weight of his body he was pulling himself up on the hands um, and and there were two different positions there one uh, sort of hanging down and one pulling himself up and the blood is seen flowing from from both positions and on the feet and then the um, he was also there's a, a place where he was pierced in the side by something that would have had the shape equivalent to a, a Roman, what the Romans known knew as a lancia, which is, you know, like a lance, basically. Um, and that there was, uh, just as, the, as it said in the, in, the, in the Gospel account, that um, what looks like a mixture of blood and a clear liquid had drained from, from that and had actually gone round to the, to the back of the body. And th there's all sorts of little um, things on there that, that you know, you you only see where, when you look at it very carefully. Um, that, for example, the um, the stains from the wrists, from the the arms, the hands would have been higher than the than the um, elbows. So the blood was trickling trickling downwards, and you can see where the blood has gone uh, round just above the elbow has gone round to the other side and made a made a spot stain on the other side. Of the of the cloth. Now, um, this brings me back to um, it's an interesting point about the difference between the blood stains and the the image, 
But before I, I go on to that, I just want to tell you one more unique feature of this, of this image that was discovered in the 1970s by, by um, an eminent um, physicist from Colorado called Dr. John Jackson, who was the leader of the, of the STIRP team back in the 70s who, who went there. They used uh, a piece of equipment that had been used by NASA for lunar reconnaissance, um, which called a VP8 uh, image intensifier, which basically what it does is it had been used in lunar reconnaissance to look for um, the contours topography of the lunar landscape uh, using distance coded information. Now, if you put, uh, as I said, we know that the shroud image is just like a, a photographic negative. Now, if you put uh, a photograph or a photographic negative in this VP8, what you get is a random set of peaks and troughs that has no um, relation to the actual three-dimensional contours of the of the human face but put the shroud image on there not just the face but the body itself and well Jackson had his John Jackson had his own eureka moment if you like when he put the shroud image in this VPA because he saw that it comes out in three-dimensional relief unlike any other photograph oh my gosh that's amazing <laughs> now that means that there's actually distance coded information on the image that tells you how close the cloth was to each part of the body when the image formed. Now put that together with the fact that the chemical changes in the surface fibrils is very similar to what happens to um, tissues like paper and so on when they've been exposed to sunlight and you'll see why um, uh, another eminent physicist by the name of um, Dr. Paolo Di Lazzaro from uh, an atomic um, energy research unit in, in Italy had the, the clever idea to actually say, hang on a minute, how about if we try exposing linen to ultraviolet light in a controlled way? And he did this using um, ultraviolet laser. Okay, and what he found is that using ultraviolet light in a short burst of, of energy you can get a, a very similar change in the fibrils of, of linen on the surface only just like you do with the um, just like happened with the with the shroud image because um, as you know ultraviolet light um, is very easily absorbed by by various various materials and and so the, all the energy from the ultraviolet light would have gone onto the surface if it's in a certain band of intensity and, and wavelength. Now, the thing is, though, that for it to have distance-coded information, what that implies, and a photographic negative properties, is that if the image was formed by ultraviolet light, it wasn't formed by a laser. <laughs> in fact, it would have taken hundreds of thousands of lasers to <laughs> and, and technology that we still don't have today. But it implies that this dead body of the man that was wrapped in the shroud had a short, there was a short intense burst of radiant energy that came from that body that actually formed the image. Now this happened after, clearly after he had died. Now um, there's something, uh, further research that was, that was done in the, in the 1990s by a, 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 um, a physician based in in Boston, uh, Dr. Gilbert Lavoie, who's um, done a, a very thorough um, 
empirical experimental research into into looking at the the shroud image and the and the blood stains now I was really fascinated when um, I heard I heard about his research because until until I heard him say it I never realized although you know you could say it was it was staring me in the face all along because once you see what he shows it's it's so obvious and um, now basically what what he looked at was the we know that the that the blood stains are a, a contact process okay that mm -hmm. the blood gets onto the cloth from the, the 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 supine body lying flat had the the cloth draped draped around it and yet when you look at the compare the blood stains to the image marks you notice certain interesting discrepancies do you remember i told you about the image from the elbow that, yes. that actually off the image of the body but there's a, a blood stain mark that's there right um and what that implies is that the 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 blood had trickled round and it had formed on a a stain that that didn't wasn't superimposed on the image. Now he also he was looking at the 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 um, blood stains around the hair and from his experimental work generally you wouldn't get transfer of of clot from from the hair. In fact, some of it is actually uh, in between the face and the hair, and some of it is 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 lateral to the hair. It's further out to the side. And he was thinking, how could this have happened? And then he had a, a very um, bright idea that how about if the if the cloth had been had been draped around the body and had been wrapped around the face when the blood stains formed, but was not in that position when the image formed. And then he noticed something else that. Um, the if you look at the 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 back image because the the shroud I, sorry if I didn't I didn't mention it earlier the shroud actually has the front and back image of the man the shroud we believe would have been draped um, the, it would have been uh, laid flat on the tomb the the body would have been laid onto the shroud on on his back and then it would have been curved over the top of the head and down over the front of the body and what we see is that we've got an image of the front of the body and then there's a gap. And then further up the shroud, there's the image of the of the back of the body, which is which is perfectly um, consistent and compatible with this. Now, the thing is that anyone who's ever seen a uh, 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 post mortem, I believe you call them autopsies, um, would um, would know that when you see a dead body laid out flat on its back, you get flattening of the tissues of the back, such as the buttocks, the calves, and so on. So. With the photographic body image of the back of the the body, we would have expected if he was laid out on the in you know in the tomb on his back that we should see that flattening, but we don't see it. We see you can actually if you look at the photographic negative imprint of the of the shroud image, what you see is all the curves are are intact. Mm, that's and interesting. <laughs> it's it's very interesting, and um and then the other thing is that you would have expected to see is that whenever any, anyone is laid down flat, especially someone with long hair like he had, and incidentally it, it, it looks at first glance that uh, that he had a, his hair tied in a ponytail, but when you look closely at the image you can see that that line um, is actually continues all the way down the cloth and is actually a seam in the cloth, rather it's actually marks in the cloth rather than the hair, that you can actually see the hair is resting down on his shoulders at the back and at the sides. Um, 
So you would have expected, though, under gravity, if he'd been laid down flat, that the hair should have all been sort of spread out behind him. But actually, it's down on his shoulders. So putting these two things together, that the hair is on the shoulders rather than behind the head, that the, the buttocks and the calves are not flattened, what he deduced from this is that what we're looking at is not the image of a, of a body laid flat on, a, on the slab, we're looking at the image of an upright man, a dead body that had be suddenly become upright. And so uh, people might think, oh, you mean it was someone who was standing. But no, if you look at the feet, you can see that the feet are in slightly different positions and with the toes pointing downwards. Bizarre as it may sound, what we're looking at is the imprint of a dead body of a man that had risen from its from its tomb, so to speak, and was vertically suspended in the air. Now, oh, that's, um, that's amazing. <laughs> it is. It is amazing, and it's interesting that that um, that we're saying that he that he may have been suspended in the in the air, which implies that gravity may have been slightly different around him, or that his mass may have, in some way, weight may have been uh, been altered. And um, we're also saying that the image. May, is consistently scientifically and empirically consistent with the image having been formed by a short burst of radiant energy from the body of the man. Now, who was this man? Uh, now, this is a man who had been crucified, and there's evidence um, from the fact that, just a slight digression here, that, um, this was how, what the Romans used to do in, um, in, in Judea. They, they used to um, torture and crucify uh, people who um, they wanted to make examples of for, for whatever reason. And looking at various evidence such as uh, pollens and, and imprints from, from flowers that have been said to have been uh, placed on the cloth, various botanists, including um, eminent ones Max Fry and also Avinom Danin, who's um, also from, a, from a, a Jewish background actually and is, is a, a, um, a professor in botany in the um, Hebrew University of, of Jerusalem. Um, and he has, is an expert on the flowers of, of Jerusalem and Judea in general. And um, what he found is that there's an actual perfect match with, with the imprints and the pollens that are, that are on there that would fit with this cloth having been in Jerusalem, expo Jerusalem exposed to the elements for the pollen to have got on there sometime in March or April. Now, um, which would fit with the timing of, of, obviously, of the Passover, which was when the, the crucifixion... So far, happened. it all fits like a glove. It's absolutely yeah. amazing. And, and looking at the historical evidence of the time, generally, the, um, the Romans were, were quite a, a bloodthirsty lot, or at least the Roman soldiers were. Um, and um, the, um, the, the, when they used to crucify people, they used to want to, to, to leave the body out for the bird, so to speak, just to, to make an example of people that this is what happens if you disobey Roman rule and leave it for, to decay and for the eyes to be pecked out and all terrible things to, to happen to it. But there was one short period of history between um, AD or Common Era, whatever you want to call it, 6 and 66, when there was actually joint rule in Judea. There was a, a Jewish uh, sort of um, figurehead leader that was allowed to be present, even though the Romans had final authority. 
and he came to a, an understanding with them. Okay, you're, you're, you know, you're torturing and crucifying our people, but at least, you know, once they're dead, what more do you want with them? At least let us give them traditional Jewish burials, which um, many listeners may know. A Jewish burial means it has to be the body has to be buried quickly, especially, um, you know, if this was the eve of the the Sabbath. They would have needed to to get him off that cross, the body off that cross, quite quite sharpish to um in in to be buried because they they were weren't supposed to be carrying dead bodies around on the, the Sabbath if they if they could help it. Now, um, the thing is that between A.D. six and sixty six, they were granted that dispensation. So, um, from the lack of decay of the of the body and the fact that all the flesh is pretty much still intact apart from the gouges that had been taken out of it through the, the lance and the the whip and the, the nails and, and the thorns um that it implies that this was a man who had been whipped had a uh been, had a cap of thorns placed on his head which was unique to to um the man who is commonly known as, as Jesus now, and in his time probably uh, we imagine would have been called Yeshua ben Yosef. This was unique to to him, specifically him, and it all fits that this was in, uh, around March or April um, between the between the years of six and sixty six. Now, I alluded to a couple of points earlier about things that we can see, evidence that we can see forensically and empirically from looking at the shroud image, which as I say is something, although people claim to have reproduced it, they can't actually reproduce all of the properties, surface phenomenon, the, the photographic negative, the um, the high resolution, the, the distance coded information, they can't actually do that in such a way that when you look at it microscopically you find the same pattern, they just can't. We, it still can't be done now with 21st century technology. So, and what the, this evidence shows is two things. One, is that it looks like something about what happened around the body of this man made the properties of gravity or his weight slightly different at that moment. And the other thing is that he there was a, a bright burst of radiant energy. Now, if you look at eyewitness reports, or at least what remains of them in what we know today as the, as the, the New Testament, and also um, in other reports, in, in, for example, in... Um, in Gnostic Gospels and so on that were, aren't part of the canon of the church as well. There are reports, it's well known, that um, this particular individual, Jesus of Nazareth, was known for certain unusual things that happened to him and around him. For example, walking on the water. Well, doesn't that imply that at that point as well, gravity was different for him, around him, or that his weight or mass were in some way in some way reduce and also there's the report of the they took um, Peter James and John up a, a mountain it said and there they saw him shining like the Sun his his um, his cl clothes even were, were shining that there was this bright light that was coming from him now isn't it interesting that scientifically and empirically we find two bits of evidence on the shroud that once we've already um, found that we can't make this image artificially, that the image fits exactly with it having been uh, archaeologically, historically, the the image of none other than Jesus of Nazareth, and that to form the image, we have to suspend our disbelief, perhaps, and imagine that perhaps 
he was the body was suspended in the air and that it shone brighter than the sun which incidentally and very importantly were things that were had been said about him soon after his lifetime by the people who 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 wrote the gospels and uh, only uh, now become become evident from looking at the shroud and if even if it were possible to um to to for a medieval forger to have made the shroud how would he know that a, a burst of light from the body would make a photographic negative why how did he know all the anatomy and pathology that that has only been discovered in the past century how did he know to um you know to um, make the blood flows have have serum stains on it basically what a lot of people have um, have said is that we can see forensically any um what forensic pathologist could testify in a court of law and, and prove beyond reasonable doubt that this is the body uh, the um the blood stains and the markings on the, the shroud are the body of a man who had been cruelly tortured and crucified the only way a medieval forger could have done it he would have had to have actually done this to someone he would have had to torture them and crucify them but even if he had done that he still wouldn't have been able to um to by any technology that was available then or importantly by any technology that's even available now produce an imprint he could have got the blood stains but how did he make that body image which we still can't do now considering so, the body was elevated at the time you said too <laughs> well yes now um the this is really w where um um so far i've been been sort of talking about the great empirical work that's been done by um you know many of my 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 colleagues in in shroud research that um that that have found out all of this information that that shows the veracity of the of the cloth and also um the what had happened to the man and who he was and so on now my particular ideas about the the shroud tie into um okay so we're we're saying that the only way that we can account for how this image formed is by a bright burst of radiant energy that came from this dead body so how does that work and some people might be tempted people uh, you know with religious beliefs well you know obviously this was what you know god did this it was a miracle and so on but you know i for me i i like to look at it scientifically and the challenge to me is to to try to to understand whether it might actually be possible to understand this using reason and extending our our knowledge of biology and of the of the natural sciences to see how this might be possible now um the the thing about that is that um uh, people imagine that it had to be what they call in quotes supernatural because this isn't something that we see <laughs> every day no, and not at and, all <laughs> yeah and and it it doesn't fit with any known physical process but the question is how does how i for me that the unique character of this particular individual that this happened to um that it, it can't be just coincidence that this is someone who's had one of the biggest impacts of any human being who's ever lived through through his teachings and how he lived and could that be a clue to it something about the man which is a clue that that for me might tell us i i think might tell us something about not just him but about humanity in general and what our potential is as human beings after all didn't he always say so many times that all these things you see me do 
you also can do these things. And he said, you know, this story about the faith the size of a mustard seed, he said, nothing will be impossible for you. Now, um, the, the question is, how, how does that work then? What we're looking at here is nothing less than, than understanding this elusive connection between mind and matter, because clearly, where he, he biologically he was a human being, and we can see that on the shroud. There's no doubt about that. You know, you can see his belly button. <laughs> he wasn't just uh, 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 it's like a spectral ghost or um, a spirit. He was a he was a you know a, a man born a of flesh woman. and blood person. Flesh yeah. and blood. Yeah. Now, um, as a human being, biologically, he would have been similar in in most ways, in many ways, to 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 the rest of us. So what was different about him? And I, I, what I consider is whether it could be a clue in, in his teachings and how he lived that might explain this. Now, for me, when he, when he summarized the chrysalis of what he was all about and what he taught and what he did, the very interesting quote that he made, um, it's uh, when he was asked that what the most important part of the, of the law is, you know, from the... The Old Testament, and he drew people's attention to the saying, um, which, which you know, many rabbis call it the the golden rule, which is, "Love thy neighbor as thyself." Now he singled out that particular one line of of the of, of the scriptures for for the most for the most attention, and and why? What was he trying to tell us? And then he also, interestingly, he actually predicted in many ways lots of what of what modern physics has only found two millennia later virtually because um you know with his thing about faith the size of a mustard seed you can move mountains well um we know from einstein's e equals mc squared that actually that's about how much mass you need to actually to actually you know make a movement of a of a mountain um if you release all the masses as, as energy and he alluded to something that in the was discovered in the 19th century um, called the second law of thermodynamics the, about the physical universe he was saying that this is a world where 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 moths eat things rust corrupts it thieves break in and steal nothing is he was implying nothing is permanent everything breaks down in this universe but there's another another way of being where there's no moths no rust and no thieves so is that the clue to it that something about this this polarity do you if you love your neighbor as yourself that does that imply that actually at a fundamental level that our neighbor is ourselves and you see this is where uh, my uh, readings into um, into theoretical physics and so on that I was um, very intrigued by uh, some things that I read that were written by um, a physicist Nobel laureate called Erwin Schrodinger people may have know of him most famously because of you know Schrodinger's cat which was um, the sort of thing that he actually <laughs> didn't attach too much importance to that was just a it was trying to make a point a little bit jovially but um, but if you read his his work particularly a book that he wrote in the 1940s called what is life he actually has some very interesting observations about the nature of mind sentience and what is consciousness and you know, you may well know that, um, that with quantum theory, that there's this notion that the observer is necessary to make the observed real. That physical existence, 
the electron, the photon, whatever, until it's observed, it's it's just possibilities. It's just um, it could be in two places at once. It can do all kinds of weird things. And then once you observe it, it becomes specific. It becomes actual, and it becomes it becomes defined at least in the measurements that you've that you've done of it. So if you've measured its 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 momentum, then it's got a momentum. If you've measured its position, it's got a position. But until you did, it was uh, like a uh, uh, like a cloud of possibilities. Okay. Well, Schrodinger actually said that the interesting thing about mind is not so much in, in, in those terms of, of just making matter real, but apart from that, we actually make time real. That what we call now, the present, is only actually meaningful for a conscious observer. And um, that we're actually creating time by our process of observation in that sense. And, um, in fact, uh, another eminent modern uh, contemporary um, professor of mathematics, uh, Professor Sir Roger Penrose, uh, uh, observed that, that consciousness is the one phenomenon we know of for which time needs to flow at all. Because according to the physical uh, rules, the uh, laws of Newton and, and so on, Einstein and all of them, you can, all the equations, they don't, they don't give you a moment of now and have things moving past that so you can have a flow of time. They just describe, they tell you where something was yesterday, where it will be today and where it will be tomorrow. They don't actually bring that to life, if you like, and make a moment that's called, that's called now. Um, and what Schrodinger said is that, is that since time is therefore created by consciousness, by the mind, that that follow, it follows from that that if the time if time is a product of the mind then the mind cannot be a product of time in other words because we've made time real because we're conscious sentient observers we cannot have a beginning or end as minds which therefore means that consciousness at its root level must be eternal which is an amazing thing for a nobel laureate physicist to have said now um if that if he's right that that mind is eternal and, and plenty of empirical evidence and near-death experiences and so on that, that people's experience continues after their brain waves are flat um, suggests to many people that, that it's true that mind doesn't, isn't made by the brain and doesn't end when the brain ends and therefore perhaps doesn't begin when the brain forms. Then, That's interesting theory. Yeah, it would follow then if the whole universe came out of, out of from nothing and uh, from nothing via a point, a zero point of of dimensionless point with no space, time, or or matter. Okay. Well, if we're eternal and everything came from one thing, or not the word thing is is wrong. Sorry, that the everything came from a, a singularity, if you like, that that it was all once together and unified. If we're eternal and everything was once unified, then we were once unified. We were all one. And if that if that state is beyond space, time, and matter, then that state is eternal. And fundamentally, if we've ever been all one, then we're always all one. That, uh, that the actual root nature of what we are as sentient beings is all the same. And I think, um, you know, if you, it's quite interesting that um, if you read the, the, the Gospel of John, which in, to many, to all intents and purposes, is unlike the other um, Gospels of the New Testament because it's more like a, a, a Gnostic um, gospel, he actually um, points out, or he actually um, suggests that 
the um, in the first chapter about the word being made flesh and so on and this was the light that shines in all men or you know all human beings in other words um, so um, what that would would imply is that that fundamentally the what enlivens us and what um, brightens our viewing capacity to make us be able to be sentient and be aware is perhaps our connection to that original singularity that the whole universe and everything once came from. Um, now, I'm hesitating from, from using the word God simply because that has so many connotations to, to different people and people imagine a white man with a beard on the top of the Sistine Chapel and we... Right. we we God is different to everybody. Everyone, rather than us being made in his image, we try and make him in, in, in our own, according to our own ways of, of seeing things. But it's, it's, it's actually so much, this, this concept that I'm, I'm trying to, to get at and what I think is, is implied by what people like Schrodinger and so on have, have said, is that there's a, a fundamental state of perfect, perfect union, of complete togetherness, which contains us all that we all we all came from, and that perhaps if that state is completely beyond time and and completely limitless in potential, then um, I don't think we're doing it justice, really, if we call it if we blame it for everything that's happened in the universe and call it the creator in the sense that it made us in the form that we have um, and it, it made our imperfections and so on. My, I, I think it's more rational to, to see it, that, that that's the state that we once were, and ha we have become less than that, but it hasn't become any less, because it's timeless, it never changes. But um, it contains all potential, so it still contains how we, how we were and can be again. And this, this particular individual, Jesus of Nazareth, may well have showed us in what he taught and how he lived a route map of how to undo the restrictions, the separation that has, has happened by us becoming limited. Now, um, vectors of mind, as I would call them, of, of direction that separate and divide, such as ego, selfishness, uh, materialism, racism, anything that, that limits us or divides one from, from the other, um, based on, you know, you know, what's mine is mine and what's yours is ours, <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, that this, this, this notion of, of dividing based on the primacy of the self and the ego, that's perhaps what actually reduces the engine, if you like, of the, the entropic drift in the first place, the second law of thermodynamics, the drive into further and further separation that happened from the, from the start of the universe. But, but what Jesus was alluding to and, and spoke about and demonstrated, perhaps, is that there's, a, there's an, a countervailing momentum that can go the other way, that if we recognize that we're all one through through empathy. If we realise that that what's looking from behind our eyes, our identity, our experience, our our feelings, our sufferings, our joys, whatever it is, that every other human being is just like us in that sense. They're just as human, just as important, just as valuable, and that value is beyond any limit because it's actually at its root level, it's it's infinite. It's just that we have limited it, and limiting, in limiting it, we've made it distinct as us, as our individuality, and that's what makes us separate from each other. And that perhaps, if we, if we recognize that in, in everyone, and if we live as he did, then perhaps we're, we might be able to become more akin to that original singularity state from which we came. Now, um, 
there's I, I spoke earlier at the start about this elusive connection between between mind and matter. So I'd I'd like to return return to that now, if I may. Okay. Um, now um, the most popular view of the connection between mind and matter amongst amongst many scientists is the one that they say that well all there is is matter basically that mind is what they call an epiphenomenon an emergent phenomenon that occurs from from a certain arrangement of atoms in the brain that gives us this perception of um of being uh, of being aware and conscious and um they don't quite qualify what they mean by this us that's being given this perception and and so on so anyway that's 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 their um that's the most common view amongst amongst me- most neuroscientists and probably amongst a lot of philosophers as well now then there's the um the dualist notion which is um quite popular amongst a lot of um religious people that that mind and matter are basically two fundamentally completely different entities that somehow by some mysterious process they interact it's a two-way traffic that the mind perceives through the senses and through the body and the mind acts through the action of will and free choice in directing the motions of the body by some uh, mysterious magical process that that nobody understands um now i would suggest that there's a, a third way of looking at it that this connection between mind and matter that it's actually a continuum now this would fit with the quantum theory um notion that matter is only made matter time and space are only actually made real because of of consciousness and in fact it was uh, another um nobel laureate physicist so not only schrodinger who was saying these interesting ideas but someone called eugene wigner who said that as far as he was concerned and he was one of the top quantum physicists of his his day that you can't co- you can't cogently and coherently explain the laws of quantum mechanics which fundamentally underpins all physical reality and is the uh, about the most accurate and precise of of all the um theories that it's been shown to be correct to you know billions of a percent and so on that he didn't see how you could, there could be a consistent way of formulating the ideas of quantum theory without reference to the consciousness so what that implies is that matter isn't isn't matter unless mind exists in the universe um so and it would then follow from that that perhaps it is a continuum that perhaps matter is just like a condensed state of of thought if you imagine like you've got um steam water and and ice that that steam is the this is only a, a, a an analogy of course um mm-hmm all different forms of water but they're all water they're all h2o now um steam can be um can fill space it can it can be lots of different places all at once and then it starts to become more um grosser uh, as the forces between the molecules of the water become become stronger and join it together as a as a liquid which will um follow the shape of what limited to follow the shape of what's around it um but it's still it can still flow and then you've got you've got solid which is actually defined in its own shape and that's what it is and it just it just sort of sits there basically not doing very much now um so in the a similar vein what if there were another continuum 
of that everything is made is constructed out of consciousness, which would make sense to to um, with this notion that um, that the that matter is only real because of consciousness, and that you've got you've got mind or or spirit or thought, whatever you want to call it, at, at one um, end, and now, looking at how the, the physical universe began at the Big Bang, to start off with, there was this state of no-thingness, if you like, and I'm careful to say no-thingness rather than nothingness, because I'm not implying it's a void, it's just that there was no, no matter, no substance, no, um, no dimension, no separation, and so on. But obviously, this nothing, no-thingness had within it huge potentiality because it had the possibility for a physical universe to emerge from it. So despite it not being anything there, not being anything there, what was there was potentiality. Now, what, what actually activates that potentiality? Now, it, it can't have been a force that made it have to happen because there was no force, because there was no matter, there was no space and time. So whatever it was, was what we call primary causation. Now, Every, I, I would argue that every single human being is aware of a form of primary causation of something that happens where, um, which is determined by mind, uh, influencing matter, um, and which we take for granted in our everyday lives and, and most of the time we don't seem to notice it, although we, we all assume it's there. And that's free will. If we have free will, as all our... Um, ethical, moral, and legal systems imply that we do. That's how people get you know, portioned credit or blame for, for what right. they've done. Whereas implying that we believe, whether we philosophically accept the point or not, whether we as neuroscientists accept the point or not, pretty much being has no option, <laughs> ironically, but to believe in free will in their, in their everyday lives. <laughs> what if it were true? What if it were real? In, if we imagine that we want to try and explain the physical world through physics, maybe that's still possible, but maybe we need to extend our notion of natural science of physics and so on to realize that physicality, matter itself, is itself a product of mind. That's why, that's why our bodies obey our free will. That's I once went to, a, to an inaugural lecture by, in the 1980s by a, um, a newly appointed professor of parapsychology in Scotland, and um, he was doing a, a talk presenting the evidence for whether whether or not such a thing as what they call psi, PSI, whether it exists, this notion of extrasensory perception, mind over matter, and so on. So, um, being um, arrogant little <laughs> twelve, that I was, <laughs> I, I put my hand up at the at the at the at the end of the of the um, of the talk, and um, said. I'd just like to make an observation that in, when the, you know, the, the chairman pointed to me to ask my, essentially to ask my question, I'd just like to make an observation that in raising my hand, I've just proved the existence of the power of mind over matter. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> and I, then I, I went on to, to, to explain that if, if I chose to raise my hand or if anyone chooses to do anything, what is that if not mind over matter? If it is free will, as we all assume it is, when we say that we have people have credit or blame for what they've done, what we're implying is that our minds are controlling our bodies. So if that's the case, why do we make up words like miracle, like supernatural, when we are taking it for granted in our everyday life that this is a reality? Now, this to me is, is why, um, you know, it's interesting 
that I, I, I gave an example um, earlier about how um, Jesus was said to have gone up the, the mountain and, and seemed to shine like the sun and so on. Now it's interesting if you look at the accounts of what happened after he came down from the mountain that, um, that some of his, his apostles who he'd, he'd left behind um, had been, um, people had been approaching them asking them to heal people and um, that sometimes they hadn't been able to do it. So they asked him, it's a very interesting question this, in context, why didn't it work? Why couldn't we do it? And you see, in, in modern day terms, people would be asking the question, but how can it be possible to do it? They were asking, why couldn't we do it? So assuming that it should be possible to do it, which maybe perhaps implies that other times perhaps maybe they had been able to do it. And his answer was very instructive, I think, very educational, I find it informative reading it. Um, that he said that um, it was because of your unbelief. And if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, again, this is returning to, to um, a, uh, something that uh, alludes to E equals mc squared, and say to that mountain it will move, to, to move and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. Yeah. Now, what that's implying is that the natural state of, of humanity is to be able to, to do these things, not as some sensational, spectacular magic show, but actually, if you look at all the things that he did that people call miracles, every single one of them, without exception, were all acts of compassion that were inspired by, by a need or a suffering that someone was in, in distress. And he reached out to them to help them because he cared. And perhaps that was his power, that he was someone who cared that truly and that deeply that these things were possible for him. And he said that actually they're possible for everyone. And, you know, there's these, these anecdotal reports. Um, I don't know how much empirical proof there is, but um, there's these anecdotal reports about, for example, you know, women who their child is trapped underneath the car and somehow, somewhere, they find the strength to lift the car out. Yeah, to I've, get heard, the car I've heard out. numerous stories like that, actually. Yeah, yeah. Now, what if, if that were true? That would be very interesting and intriguing to, to tie into this notion that the power... Of, of empathy and and compassion that if you care that much that I was saying that the the mass of Jesus' body may have become less when he walked on water well you know he wasn't the only one to walk on water according to the story Peter did it as well that's another human being um, was also able to do that which fits in with his notion that he was saying look you know seeing me doing these things don't just don't just hero, hero worship me and put me up on some kind of pedestal as, as, as something that you can never be. Um, he said, you know, you can, you're able to do these things also, and greater than these things could, could you do. So maybe that, that woman who, who loved the child so much actually maybe transformed the atoms of that car that they actually became lighter, so she was able to lift them up because the force print the matter is just simply uh, a force print. That's all it is. We describe it in, in physics terms as the action of matter through four forces, uh, gravity, electromagnetism, strong nuclear force, and weak nuclear force. And all um, atomic and physical interactions are based on one or a combination of more of those, of those, of those forces. And at a fundamental level, you could make a good case. It's truly like mind over matter. If you really, truly think you can, you can. Well, it's it's also um, to do with the fact, I think, that 
what I'm, I'm alluding to about what he taught and how he lived, this notion of love thy neighbor as thyself, that, um, you know, it's not just a case of, you know, wishing um, enough and believing that you're going to win the lottery and then you're going to... <laughs> yeah, I wish it you, worked that way. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I mean, I, I want to win the lottery. I want that Ferrari, you know. It, it, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't quite work like that, perhaps. But, but his, his power, that's the point. His power was all through through caring and 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 it's not i don't want to make too much of a big thing of of these of these um spectacular acts that that he did the point to me is that that returning to the shroud of turin is that this one act of leaving that image meant that a dead body had risen up vertically and had shone now what does what does that tell us now what was actually happening to the corpse now it's interesting that um, that concerning this historical individual, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, that he is said to have resurrected, to have come back from the from the dead. Now, could perhaps this photographic negative, distance-coded information that some burst of of ultraviolet type radiance has formed from the dead body of this upright, suspended man, could we be looking at a photographic negative of the actual resurrection itself? Now, um, that's a very big claim to make, I know, but but nobody can actually duplicate this. Now, I should say at this point, I'm not saying this with any religious axe to grind. I actually, like, interestingly, a lot of the shroud researchers come from, a, like me, come from a, a lot of them have come from a Jewish background. And, um, you know, we've, we've got, uh, as I say, people from all walks of life who, and um, from all backgrounds who, who, are, who studied the shroud, but it's not particularly... Um, to, to try and prove a point or, or, or validate preconceived dogma or, or notion. Quite the opposite. What, what motivates, I think, most of us is that we just want to find the truth, that this is an object that should have the whole of science, you know, running around trying to, trying to understand and explain it, because it's the, of, all, of all historical artifacts, this is the one that's been the most studied, and still we can't really fully account for it but it does seem to perhaps give us some clues into this as i was saying into the possible connection between between mind and matter the so, church really doesn't want uh, it to be analyzed further do they they just don't want the truth to be out there well um i i, I don't really know what their what the their motivations are and i i can't not really in a position to to to, to say but but all I know is that there there are a lot of scientists who are have been requesting to have to uh, for the church to allow further tests to be done um, and to get carbon dating from other parts of the cloth that are further away from that corner and so on. And um, the church, for whatever reason, and I don't know what that reason is, that they're, they're not willing to to do it. But um, but you know we're still we still keep trying. Um, but but to me that's that's the point that that this is a um, a body of a, a man who had died, and yet something about about him about it meant that the um, if it, the body rose up, that it was somehow lighter, it was less enforced, and this burst of radiant energy came from it. Now, one of my papers I recently presented at a, a scientific conference in in Poland. I was sort of um, saying that it's quite interesting that that there were researchers like um, the eminent shroud researcher uh, Raymond Rogers, who was based at, at um, Los Alamos, which is where 
you know, the, the Manhattan Project, where right. the first um, nuclear bomb was, that this is the sort of use of this E equals MC squared, um, I don't, I'm not saying he was to do with that, but 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 that's the laboratory where that was where that was done. Now, um, the interesting that um, that other research has been done there on the trout, and could there, coincidentally and, and intriguingly, perhaps be a connection? Could both be tied in with this e equals m c squared? That this was a release of energy from the body of the man. Now, interestingly, um, it wasn't the um, release of energy according to e equals mc squared of a 70 kilogram man. I'll tell you why. Because I've, <laughs> I've done the equations, done the calculations, and if you released, you know, I told you about um, you, can, you can make a, 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 a discernible movement in a mountain from releasing all the energy of a mustard seed. Well, right. you release all the energy of, a, of, uh, of 70 kilograms, from mass into energy according to e equals mc squared, what you would have had is 100,000 times the size of the blast that devastated Hiroshima. So, you know, we know that didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, no. you know, the cloth is still intact. <laughs> it's just only a, a surface fiber effect. So this wasn't about a, um, a bludgeon, if you like, of, of huge, immense force. This, this notion of, of the Star Wars thing of may the force be with you, I think he may have been, uh, Jesus may have been giving us a clue a bit closer to it, rather than saying the force be with you, he said, my peace I leave with you. Peace is like the the absence of force, which is interesting because that was also an announcement that is said to have been made around the time of his birth, about peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Now what I'm, I've been implying here is that force enforcement is what makes something happen it has no choice about it force dictates what happens and I've been suggesting that perhaps freedom or the will free will you no know, peace on earth goodwill to all men is actually what happens where there's no force like in the original no thingness state of the singularity that the whole physical universe came from and that it would fit from that that in returning to becoming closer to that singularity state through unifying whereas the rest you know most of the universe is dividing and separating through the second law of thermodynamics that breaks everything down makes everything rot and so on moth thrusts and thieves and so on and he, mm -hmm. here was someone who did the opposite love neighbor herself and brought together joining and uniting to become uh, if you like um fitting congruent and analogous to the actual singularity that we all came from and maybe w he wasn't asking us to believe a piece of religious dogma when he said my father and I are one and the same he was actually telling us a simple rational if you like mathematical fact that if you actually can achieve that uh, primal state of union through through caring enough and how you and how you live and so on you become one with the singularity which is which he described as the father of all of us and interestingly he said, um, you know, they, they said, pe people said to him, well, how do, can you call yourself son of God and so on? And he said, but is it not written in the law, you are gods? Huh. He was talking about the limitless potential of all human beings. And he had already said, a uh, very famous uh, quote from, from what he is said to have said, blessed are the peacemakers, okay, peacemakers, those who reduce force, if you like, and, and make calm and make peace. For they shall be called children of God. 
So here was someone who, who was known as the son of God, perhaps, quite, oh, I would say quite rightly so, um, based on his, what he taught and how he lived, that he, that he earned that, <laughs> he earned that title. Uh, he could quite easily have, have run away from Jerusalem after having predicted what was going to happen to him there, but he didn't. That's kind that of an amazing part, too, because he actually knew it was going to happen. Yeah, to actually face up to all of that and everything he did and the power that he had to 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 help people was, I, I'm arguing, is all through how much he, he cared. But he made it, was very careful to point out so many times, as I've said, that this wasn't just a, a, a demonstration of of what we could never be, just to um, like to taunt us or, or say, you know, this is how bad you are because you can't be this. He said, this is what we can be. He didn't, he, he referred to his father as our father. He said, um, you know, the peacemakers will be called children of God. He said, you know, nothing will be impossible to you. All these things I do, you can do also. Whenever someone was healed or cured after coming into contact with him, he didn't say, I've healed you. He didn't say, God has healed you. He said, your faith has cured you. He was always very careful to, to actually show people that it was their own size and, and their own grandeur and immensity and of, of limitless value and importance as, as human beings, every human being, that meant that, that, that gave this potential for, for, for this to have happened. So, so fundamentally, that's to me the, the point about it. It's not, the, the point is not that, um, that, the the dead body um, came back to life, but that but that his he was dem proving to us, if you like, that that death is not the end. That we don't need our our bodies to come back to life for death not to be the end. And we've got you know near death experiences already already demonstrate that to us. But but so but I would speculate, and of course you know this is this is obviously speculation i can't i don't claim to have any 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 special um knowledge that anyone else doesn't, doesn't have but um i would speculate that um that his power of compassion of, of 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 caring for his fellow man was so strong and so powerful that even after he'd been cruelly tortured and killed by by humanity if there was still a chance and, and he was still welcome to to invited to to come to come back to them um, and to to help them further to the greatest extent of his ability, then then he would do so. And if he were going to do so, then um, how would he make himself known to us except through that through that body, which which contained all the information of of what he was and did in in his life. And so what, I, what I'm suggesting is that his We've already, I've already made a case that, that the mind doesn't end with the death of the body and that uh, the nature of our mind is determined by, by our attitudes and how we, how we live, whether we restrict it and become limited through separation and selfishness or enhance our potential through caring and compassion. Well, he had done that to such a huge extent that, that perhaps he had become analogous to that original singularity state that we all came from and which all life traces its its origin to, such that he could actually bring that bring that body back to life. But once doing so, he was actually making perhaps a, a momentum that that went the opposite way to the to the second law of thermodynamics that breaks everything apart. It was then just as it's an inexorable process that once we're born, we begin to die, 
that our cells gradually degrade and deteriorate. Well, once he'd, unloos- once he'd loosened and undone the bounds of, of force to some extent that were holding that matter bound uh, and to, 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 make, to put the peace there, if you like, back into the atoms and reduce the tension, well, that, they kept unraveling. They became lesser and lesser enforced. The, the, the more peace and less matter, less substance, if you like, until eventually they became so light that that his his body was actually less dense than the air around him, and hence this this um, report that that the body was seen to to ascend into the air and and disappear out of view. Now I I don't think as you know that there's been some depictions of this that this is a physical body that just keeps climbing up into the sky into the stratosphere <laughs> into the Milky Way. Now I don't I don't think that at all. I think this was actually the atoms becoming going back into the state of of no thingness of of not being material and and this was the the point that that in reaching that state of of the the singularity he'd achieved a state beyond beyond time and space which was why he was able to to say not just as a point of dogma or something telling people to believe it but when he said i will be with you always because he had reached a, a state of existence, or was re- reaching a state of existence beyond time and space, such that such that that statement could be true that he that he could actually he could actually be there because um, basically what I'm what I'm uh, alluding to is this notion that what gives us our ability to be alive and to be to be sentient and to have to have freedom of choice is. Our connection, uh, intact line of connection, going all the way back to the Big Bang singularity. That means that we have, uh, we contain a pure element of that within us. And yet, the problem is that we that we distort it through our own imperfections and so on. That mark us all out as individuals through our own egos and so on. An analogy that that I've often um, often liked to to use. I've heard other people say it as well. After hearing everything like this, this is enough to make somebody that's an atheist or anything completely rethink their view on uh, Jesus. I mean, if if this was a real trial in a court of law, the case would be proven. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, there there was actually um, uh, a university over there where they they set out to do a a trial of the Shroud of Turin with people making arguments for and against. And it's always the case that actually... um, no one, none of the people who think it's a 14th century artifact, none of them can consistently explain how how it could have been made. They say they make claims that they have, like this Gala Shelley and various other people. But when you actually look at what they've produced, it's always missing the key properties of the of the of the shroud image. Mm-hmm. What what I was suggesting about is the my um, analogy that the the sun shines the same on on everyone if you like imagine us each with our own little house with our windows with our uh, different colored glass and and curtains and shutters and so on and and each of us allows or disallows that light into us in in different ways such that um we we have relative various degrees of light and shadow and darkness within us um, but fundamentally, the sunlight is the same sunlight for everyone, and this is this this notion that that all sentience, all consciousness, actually derives from from a single source originally, 
and we've become less than that we've become imperfect we've become restricted and therefore separate because we each have our own patterns of restriction not through the reward punishment or arbitrary tests or or trials that a creator has put us through but out of choice this is it's it's our our will that has that we we define ourselves through our choices so you can at any given moment in your life you can choose to do a kind act or a cruel one and then you will be defined to, by others and by your own conscience by that act which you have made so in the same sense if if it's we we accept that people have will and that we define who we are through what we choose why not take it a step back further and say you know um Hitler wasn't, didn't have his state of mind that was so evil because God made it. No, he had that state of mind because out of his own um, compunction and his own um, blame, his own ignorance and so on, he made that himself. How, how, how could, you know, as, as Jesus said, if a, if a kingdom is divided against itself, how will it prosper? Why would, why would God uh, make people, uh, you know, create evil? Uh, if it's going to act against him it makes much more sense to say that if will is is free that we actually define ourselves and make ourselves and we actually have completely limitless potential fundamentally as as, as jesus was at pains to point we out we just choose our own destiny maybe we, good or bad either way we choose well it. to some extent we choose it but but of course once we take on physical identity and, and a human body and so on then we're 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 prey to to this universe of of chaos. So, for example, if someone does something bad to you, or if a boulder falls on your head, you didn't actually choose that to happen. But perhaps by um, our minds being of a certain state where we we had to take on, we had to incarnate, take on flesh in physical form, um, that we we make ourselves prey to the the what happens in 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 that chaotic universe. That the the only way to be to be guaranteed of nothing bad happening to you, if you like, is to is to find that other state of being that that Jesus alluded to, where there's no moths and no rust and 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 no thieves. That I mean, you know, there's this question: if we if we didn't begin when we were conceived, well, in it because we began before then, and we um, we don't end when we when we die. Where did we come from, and where did we go? Where do we go to? Uh, interestingly, all religions have, a, at some point, had a notion of a reincarnation. In fact, there was it said that there was a, a wife of a Roman emperor that asked for all the references to it to be taken out. That's what I've, I've heard that said, but actually, I don't think they all were quite taken out because there's one uh, conversation that's reported between Jesus and the apostles when he was asking them. You know who who do people say that that um, that I am, and they say, well, people have said that that it is said before um, before the Messiah comes that Elias, otherwise known as um, Elijah, um, will have to return. Now, what does that mean? Who will have to return? This is someone who died, uh, you know, hundreds of years before, and and Jesus' reply was uh, reported to have been, well, I tell you that he has already returned and you knew him not you didn't know him you didn't recognize that it was him and the the report that that was written was that and they understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist Hang on a minute they understood that he was telling them 
that Elijah, a man who had lived a few hundred years and then died, had returned as John the Baptist. So they believed that whether or not he was telling them that, of course, I've got no way of knowing that. But, um, but they are, at least the report is that they understood that that's what he was saying. So at least after having heard him talk for years and heard his teachings and so on, they um, believed that it was possible that people could reincarnate, that Elijah could return as John the Baptist. Now, the um, the notion in, um, that has been around for, for millennia in um, amongst you know billions of the the world's population, um, this notion of of, um, of reincarnation might might well make sense because if if we die and we haven't made uh, um, our, our minds perfectly congruent with complete compassion and caring and become one with the original singularity where all is together, then how do we continue? Um, and if it's, the interesting thing is if you look at near-death experiences, when people say they, um, they, they see someone uh, with them who takes them through a life review, they experience all the things that they did, the kind and cruel things that they did to other people, and they experience them as though they're being done to them. So they feel the happiness of the good things they did, and the, they feel the pain that they caused to others, and so on, through wrong things that they did. They do, and they don't feel like they're being judged, but they feel like their conscience is, is judging them. So th this notion, this Eastern notion of karma, which is basically cause and effect, pretty much like um, Newton's third law of motion applied to, to the mind, or the spirit, that, that anything, that action has its equal and opposite reaction, that in some way, if our conscience knows that what we've done, we, we should have done better, that maybe we try and set it right. Maybe we, we, we can come back again. But if we do come back again, the more we keep coming back into this physical universe, of, which has this law of diminishing returns, a second law of thermodynamics that breaks things apart, the more we're likely to become less each time rather than more we're not you know it's, it's not a case of whether or not we're here to learn we're here and it gives us an opportunity to learn but we can also become more more ignorant and that's once that ignorance begets more more ignorance and and so on now it's interesting that um there was a report published in a journal here in in the uk called new scientist um about some scientific research that suggests that rather than our brains getting bigger with time they're actually shrinking for the past 200,000 years our brains have been shrinking and it's postulated that that perhaps that unless we do something about it rather than evolving to something better we're going to devolve to something to something less maybe our ancestors the original African Eve that they've traced back from mitochondrial um, tracings and so on maybe those original African humans were actually the pinnacle of, of human potential and and since then We've been uh, since we came away from Africa. We've been we've been becoming becoming less, and actually our uh, our brains have have actually uh, been been shrinking. And there is there is sort of archaeological paleontological um, evidence that that Cro-Magnon and, and Neanderthal man actually had had bigger brains than we do. So that's kind of um, a scary thought. <laughs> well, the point is that if free will prevails, um, then that means that nothing. Is, is completely f that means that although the tendency if we do nothing if we just um, if we just uh, passive and and let life pass us by and just sit there with our, our beer and cigarettes watching soap operas or <laughs> whatever it is that we do without caring about people 
not that I've got anything against uh, cigarettes or beer or so forth. Or <laughs> I'm supposed to have something against cigarettes, sorry, because I'm a doctor. <laughs> no, sorry, I, I'm, I'm just... But, I'm against um, cigarettes, I don't feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not, I, I'm not really alluding to that. What I'm uh, alluding to is that, um, that um, if, if our lives, if we don't recognize the, the immense, uh, limitless uh, value and potential of, of, of all of all human beings in how we live and if we just live for the self for the ego then we'll we'll continue to become less and then we, we won't be able to follow this example which 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 he showed us so for me that's what the what the shroud is all about in summary it, it's all about saying what a, what a human being and therefore all human beings have have limitless capacity um, and potential and that and that perhaps we've been shown a um, a route map, if you like, of how to achieve our, our full potential, and it's not through funny exercises or or, or diets or um, or reciting things or anything like that. It's just by recognizing the that the only thing of of true value. This is an interesting philosophical point that when we ascribe value to something, we can only do that because we have sentience we have a mind that enables us to be subjective because value only exists within subjective things so um you may feel that your car has value to you but your car doesn't feel that you have value to it because it doesn't feel it doesn't have a value system because it has no mind and um the same goes for for computers and artificial intelligence they have no value system at all because they're inanimate they're they have no sentience so the ultimate value has to only has to be contained within that which can know value, which is which is sentient things. And and in this world, as far as we know, the the greatest exponents of of that are are human beings, and uh, human beings that are able to um, to to do the most to themselves, to each other, and to the environment in a neutral way, either positive or negative. Now we have to be careful how we define positive and negative because those are very subjective terms but a friend of mine who um, you've had on the show before <laughs> has an interesting uh, uh, take Nigel Kerner an interesting take on um, on 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 value systems um, that he said you you know you can uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him here so I hope I, I get it right That's okay. um, that um, the that, that value systems um, to, to to have a value system, you have to first exist, because you have to be there in order in order to know. So the the most valuable thing of all has to be that which preserves your existence. And now, if our existence isn't just defined by our physical life, as you know, we, we, I think we've uh, spoken about a lot of evidence today that that um, suggests that. Um, that uh, physical life isn't the beginning or the end of, of, of consciousness or the mind. So it's to do with how we continue and how we, how we persist. And if we follow the, um, the momentums of this physical universe of, of, of separation that breaks everything apart, well, then we ourselves are becoming restricted, becoming less, becoming the, the apes of the future, if you like. That our, if our brains are getting smaller and we're becoming our intelligence quotients are dropping according to this recent research as time goes on, then we're not on the way um, 
to evolve into into higher and higher more spiritual beings naturally if left to our own devices if we're not careful we're actually going the other way we're actually we're actually becoming less and you know that's the thing about evolution i you know, i think darwin was right about natural selection for me it's because i like things that are logical and fit with right reason if you say the fittest thing to survive will survive well yes that's true it will if some of that fitness to survive was contained in the genes and you survived to pass those genes on then yes you'll pass on what made you fit to survive and the offspring may also have some fitness to survive and are more likely to survive but hang on a minute what makes you fit to survive why is it that a cockroach will survive a nuclear holocaust and a human being will not are they fitter to survive are they perhaps a future product of physical evolution adaptate because evolution is adaptation to the environment that's all it is it's not about some grand philosophical um value system of becoming spiritual or anything or or wise all it means is being fittest to survive and as as uh, um as Nigel actually pointed out rocks survive for hundreds of millions of years or at least they they exist for hundreds of millions of years and for those um people who consider that um that mind is nothing more than a property of the arrangement of atoms well you know the same types of atoms hydrogen carbon nitrogen and oxygen that that make us up make up non-living things too so that those things those chemicals can sit around for for hundreds of millions of years so are they fitted to survive is that the end product of evolution for us to become less well perhaps it is perhaps that is the the end product of of the dog eat dog survival of the fittest and so on but perhaps there is another way perhaps if the physical universe is one as jesus said of of moths rust and thieves that breaks everything apart maybe it does work that you can actually with your free will you can go the opposite way by by caring by by compassion by uniting in instead of dividing and recognizing that's the limits should all do anyway that's the problem with the world nowadays <laughs> yeah and maybe if we if we were truly able to do that then we would be able to achieve the state that 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 Jesus has showed us and i'm not saying this is a, a religious claim i hope i've i've made a, a empirical and rational case case for this that that perhaps that i hope holds water and if you know if anyone ha- can find any flaws in it i'm always grateful to i want to you know learn from anyone who can who can show any contradiction in what i'm saying but so far i think all the people i've spoken to have either agreed or that they've agreed to differ rather than saying that the, the reason why this doesn't make sense i actually went to a talk again when i was a student by um professor john maynard smith who visited scotland while i was there as one of the world was one of the world leading evolutionary biologists and at the end of his lecture i um made some points to him similar to what i said today about about um this notion of devolution evolution within devolution that things are breaking down if you leave them to their natural devices um and this what as i say one of the world's top evolutionary biologists his comment at the end of um this um, of what i what i said to him was um well i can't fault your logic but i don't agree with you <laughs> <laughs> all right andrew silverman everybody thank you very much andrew for coming on the show we'll be right back you're listening to threshold radio
TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Cop Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Uh, welcome back to Threshold and Other Realms. With us, we have Adam Seltzer. How are you doing today, Adam? Oh, pretty well. How are you doing, John? Yeah, pretty good. What's been new with you? I haven't heard from you for a couple of years. Got a new uh, blog, yeah, right? I kind of <laughs> dropped out of the business for a couple of years. Uh, I do have a new blog, Chicago Unbelievable, which is uh, my, my old blog repurposed. We've got new podcasts. Where, uh, I'm really making a point of trying to investigate some of the under-investigated areas around Chicago. You know, certain places like Bachelor's Grove is a ghost hunting theme park now. It, it, it's actually terrible nowadays. Yeah, but you know, there's all these other places. The last of the buildings in Cabrini Green is torn down, so we can investigate Little Hell, Death Corner. Well, yeah, never places thought of like that, that one. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, just have, I actually put out an ebook. The fun thing about the ebook world is you can uh, decide to have a, decide to write a book, and it's on sale as soon as you're finished with it. Yeah, instantaneous. So, so yeah, yeah, Chicago Unbelievable presents Ghosts of Chicago. You know, I spent a lot of people know I spent about six years in the ghost tour business. Uh, right. This is just my tour pattern with all the information I never had time to say before. And so you I've got, dug up new information on just about every story in Chicago, every big one. And are you still doing tours now then? Uh, as of tonight, I'm back in the tour business. I'll be uh, running a, occasional tours through Chicago hauntings. Yeah, because I took that one tour with you, that private tour, and we got some uh, pretty good footage. Yeah, actually, that, that <laughs> photograph you took of me in the Florentine Ballroom at the Congress Hotel with the uh, mysterious shadow on the wall. I like to tell people it's me with Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, uh, of all the pictures ever taken on one of my tours, that is without question the best. I'm honored. Yeah. <laughs> More like lucky, actually. Right. <laughs> so, how have you been? What's been going on at Bachelor's Grove? Uh, not too much. Actually, Bachelor's Grove has pretty well died down, no pun intended. Right. But about three years ago, it was active as can be, and nowadays it's actually extremely slow. I'm not getting right. nothing out there. Yeah, every time I've been out there, I get more I, I get more of that haunted vibe out in the woods around it than in the cemetery. Yeah, actually, itself. west of it, once you cross that yeah. little creek. Once you, cro- once you cross the stream, which you hear... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the ultimate ghost busting cliche. You don't want to cross the stream, but that's where it gets. Uh, actually, out it there, it's, it's been it's been extremely slow lately. I haven't gotten any EVPs, any photos, or nothing. Really? And for that one year period, three years ago, I got like four or five really good photos and EVPs. Yeah. But I think it's because it's so overpopulated now. That place. Right. Is like, I mean, the the ratio of bodies to visitors has to be the highest of any place in the city. I was out there. It was two weeks ago. We had a meet and greet. Naturally, it rained. We were across the street onto the pavilion. Right. And there was a constant, there was a constant stream of uh, people in and out in the pouring rain, mm-hmm. which is absolutely insane. <laughs> yeah, I got a couple of books coming out in uh, November. I got one, my new one from Random House is called Extraordinary: The True Story of My Fairy Godparent Who Almost Killed Me and Certainly Never Made Me a Princess. It's uh, <laughs> it's an epic tale of love, vampires, and unicorn poop. Uh, you got any website links or anything you want to promote? Uh, just uh, AdamSelzer.com. Uh, we're, we're just about to launch the second season of the Chicago Unbelievable podcast. On the last one, we went to, we went to Bachelor's Grove again just to get relaunched. We went to Hull House and talked about all the legends and history there. That's one of your favorite places, I like, isn't it? I like Hull House. Um, most of the stories about it that go around are complete nonsense, but there are some other ones. I did a lot of in-depth research on it recently. I figured out exactly which bedroom was supposed to be the haunted one, uh-huh. which I'd never been able to figure out before. 
uh, some research about what was there before, what was uh, what caused Charles Hull to move out of it in the first place. And you know, as I said, most of the stories you'll hear on tours or TV shows about it are complete nonsense. That's but, a lot of but, it is actually. Yeah, but you, when you dig up, you find the real stories better anyway. What you need to do is go back to the Congress Hotel. That place oh, is good. <laughs> if, if the Congress Hotel is not haunted, no place is haunted. Yeah, that place um, is absolutely Every amazing, time I actually. do any more research on that, I find ten more people who've died there, uh, <laughs> five more rooms that people have come screaming out of. It's, it's not that uncommon for people to go to the desk in the middle of the night and say, sorry, I can't stay here anymore. Yeah, that's um, cool. <laughs> last time I was there, the security guards gave me the story. They got a call down from a guy saying, there's something moving in my closet. I didn't open it early. There's something moving. They said, well, sir, can you take a look inside of it? He said, no. <laughs> <laughs> By the time they got there, he was backed up and gone. I know that time I was there with you on that tour, that place was active, you can tell. And then, yeah. take, and then that phone rang that time. That guy answers, right, and it's like is, dead air. <laughs> yeah, they have a, weird, a lot of problems there with the phones. Uh, the desk gets calls from rooms that are not unoccupied. Uh, <laughs> phones in the hallway just ring randomly. Oh, uh, the one time I did a stakeout there, I was actually with Ursula. We set up uh, an audio recorder that just run in the room on the on 12 North, which is the haunted floor. Uh-huh. Um, when I played it back, the phone rang and rang and rang while we were out of there. And, you know, nobody knew we were there. Nobody had our phone number there. Well, that's a common thing, though. You always hear about haunted places where the phones will actually start yeah. to ring by themselves. Yeah, well, one of the other ones there is uh, the TVs turn themselves off and on. Oh, really? It drives people, it drives the engineering staff there crazy. They've replaced the wiring. They've replaced the TVs. Is there any and, place uh, there that's more active than others? You know, like a particular wing or a particular floor in, in, in the, the building? In the Congress? Uh, the security staff always talks about 12 North. Yeah. Uh, that's where they see the ghost of a little boy running around that we think is uh, the ghost of Carl Langer, whose mother threw him out the window in the oh. 1930s. Okay, this, yeah. is, this poor woman. <laughs> this uh, family had been kicked out of Czechoslovakia when Hitler took over. Their visa in America was about to expire. She had a nervous breakdown thinking they were going to get sent back to Czechoslovakia, where conditions for the Jews had not exactly improved. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, so in a nervous breakdown, she checked into the 12th floor, threw both of her sons out the window, then jumped out herself. <laughs> How oh, nice. <laughs> Poor woman. Poor kids, too. All right. That was Adam Seltzer. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts, Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp, Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights, 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. With the month of October and Halloween fast approaching, we want you, the listener, to share your creepy stories with us. Call us, email us, text us your personal story, your local legends, and folklore. Every week in October, we'll read your story on air. You can even read it yourself if you're not afraid. Call or text us at 708-966-9UFO. 708-966-9836 or email John directly at ghost1 at bachelors-grove.com Thank you and we look forward to your stories.
You're listening to Thresholds, Know the Realms. I'm Anthony Kay. With me is Sam Ronto and John Stevenson. We hope you enjoyed the show tonight. We'll be back next week on TheEdgeOnAir.com, Friday nights, 10 to 11. Also, we'll be back Sunday nights, 7.30. That's Sunday nights, 7.30, UFO-Info.com, or the UFO Paranormal Network. You can catch us there anytime. See you next week. Take it all back Some way, somehow